at least for a while. Mary saved newspaper clippings about the assassination, and she wondered. The Warren Commission's report came out and supposedly laid all the rumors to rest. The loner Oswald had killed the president for reasons known only to himself. Like many Americans, Mary Meyer wanted to believe it. Like many others, she just couldn't. They couldn't control him anymore. At Mary Meyer's funeral service in the Bethlehem Chapel of the National Cathedral, Angleton served as an honorary pallbearer. Afterward, he read the diary of his deceased friend. He learned that Mary had taken LSD with Kennedy, after which they had made love, or so Angleton would claim. He showed the sketchbook to Mary's son, Quentin. Angleton did not destroy it, despite having told Anne Truitt that he would. Rather, he sifted its counterintelligence implications. Did the death of a woman in whom the late president might have confided have anything to do with the Soviet penetration that Golitsyn had warned about? Angleton asked journalist Joseph Trento. Had someone in Kennedy's inner circle been compromised? Was Hoover's FBI, which kept track of such personal matters with astonishing competence, the Soviet's source? Had the Soviets penetrated the FBI as well as the CIA? As was often the case, Angleton's conspiracy theories lacked substance. There was, and is, nothing to indicate Mary Meyer's death had anything to do with Golitsyn. There was no compromise of Kennedy's inner circle. Hoover did not tell the Soviet Union about JFK's love affair with Mary Meyer, and no, the Soviets had not penetrated the FBI or the CIA, at least not in any way that pertained to Meyer. Angleton pressed on with the mole hunt, playing Svengali to CIA director John McCone. He convinced McCone that Golitsyn's suspicions of a mole had to be investigated. McCone met no fewer than 11 times with the former KGB man. Golitsyn told him that at least five agency employees and possibly as many as 30 were KGB agents. McCone discussed the allegations with J. Edgar Hoover, who in November 1964 finally agreed to a joint FBI-CIA investigation. Angleton was grimly pleased. Instead of one-off investigations of individual suspects, such as Peter Carlo, a team of bureau and agency operatives would collaborate in studying the penetration problem comprehensively. To honor its leading spirits, Angleton dubbed the investigation Honatol, a combination of letters from the FBI director's last name and Golitsyn's first name. Honatol was run by a six-man committee, including Angleton and Bill Sullivan and Sam Papich, both of the FBI. The Special Investigations Group, run by Birch O'Neill, reviewed CIA files. The Honatol Committee developed a list of 40 suspected moles, 13 of whom would be investigated in depth. Sicily Angleton did not have the time or the interest to attend the trial of Ray Crump, Jr., a 25-year-old African-American man who was arrested and charged with killing Mary Meyer. In the summer of 1965, Sicily did have the time. Much had changed in the months since Mary's murder. President Johnson had ordered a massive escalation of the war in Vietnam. The newspapers carried a story about a group of people arrested for planning to destroy the Washington Monument, the Statue of Liberty, and the Liberty Bell. The Beatles were dominating the music charts. Time magazine had a cover story on LSD. The chemical once controlled by the men of the MK Ultra program was now known as acid and was sold on college campuses as a drug of liberation, not mind control. 
the secrets of the CIA were seeping into American consciousness with unexpected results. In the Washington courtroom, Cicely listened as the prosecutors presented the testimony of a witness, Henry Wiggins, the mechanic who had seen the light-skinned black man walk away after Mary cried for help. Crump's lawyer, a righteous lady named Dovey Roundtree, noted that not a hair of Mary's blue Angora sweater had been found on Crump's hands or clothing. The police claimed Crump had thrown the gun in the river or the canal. The Marine Corps divers found nothing. Cicely tried to make sense of it all, for herself, for the kids, for Jim. It was a struggle, a terribly long struggle, to keep your family together and yourself together and your husband together in the Cold War, in the CIA, she later told an interviewer. That was one of the great traumas that I had. It was something you had to wrestle with all the time. When Cicely looked around the courtroom, she wanted to think things were working. Judge Corcoran was objective. The prosecuting attorney, Mr. Hantman, was competent. So was Mrs. Roundtree. The jurors, colored and white alike, seemed attentive. She missed Mary's warmth, her concern, her joy. On July 30, 1965, the jury found Ray Crump not guilty of murdering Mary Meyer. They apparently decided there was just not enough evidence to remove all reasonable doubt, she told Cord Meyer when she got home. Meyer typed out the news in a terse letter to his mother-in-law, Ruth Pinchot. He added the passing suggestion that she talk to Cicely about the verdict. He was not going to. Cord Meyer did not want to talk or think about his ex-wife's death. Angleton made his own inquiries. Later that summer, Peter Jessup, a former Tel Aviv station chief, wrote a note to Angleton saying that he'd had a long conversation with the wife of Judge Corcoran, the man who had presided over Crump's trial. Mrs. Corcoran advised Angleton not to press her husband on the details, as he was too upset by the case. Cicely was left alone in her sorrow. She knew all too well how to stifle her grief. The deaths of her own brothers, Charles and Hugh, in 1944, and her family's stoic reaction never left her. She would write a poem about the desolating effects of sorrow called Erosions, in which she said, Our family wrapped their grief in heavy parcels. The poem ended, On sad occasions a ball of string was always rolling, and fishhooks seal our eyes. Cicely had lost her brothers. She had lost Jim, who was often absent from her life. And now she had lost Mary, who had been like a sister to her. All she had were her children, and the blinding pain of a CIA wife. And fishhooks seal our eyes. Bomb Angleton was a man unbound. His empire now stretched from Mexico City to London to Rome to Jerusalem. He was in Israel when he heard the news. The Soviet-Russia division had decided to subject Yuri Nosenko to hostile interrogation. Although Angleton had talked with Dave Murphy and Ray Roca about how to break Nosenko, he would say he felt that he hadn't been consulted on the final decision. The news did not disrupt his trip. Even as the mole hunt consumed more and more work hours at Langley, Reading personnel files, analyzing travel records, and collating interrogation reports, Angleton did not miss his regular trips to Israel. He used to come from time to time to meet the head of Mossad to get briefings, recalls Ephraim Halevi, who served as the Mossad's liaison officer to the CIA station in Tel Aviv in the early 1960s. 
Halevi escorted Angleton on his rounds and recorded his meetings with Israeli officials. He used to meet with David Ben-Gurion, whom he knew for many years, Halevi recalled. Ben-Gurion ultimately left office in 1963, and Angleton went down to Sedeb Oker, Ben-Gurion's home in the Negev, to meet him. I didn't attend those meetings. Those were just the two of them. He had business to transact. Angleton's appreciation for the men who built the Jewish state had only grown over the years. He admired Issaharel and the Mossad for capturing Adolf Eichmann in 1960 and did not fail to notice that operational prowess translated into respect at Langley. But it was Harrell's dynamic conception of secret intelligence as much as any individual act of daring do which most impressed Angleton. Angleton shared his impetus for action. Harrell was a key player and strategist in implementing the concept of Ben-Gurion to reach out to the periphery beyond the Arab world, Halevi explained. He set up relations with the Shah of Iran and the Turkish Intelligence Service, the MIT. He created the threesome of Israel, Turkey, and Iran under the name Trident, the three services met annually in Tel Aviv, Ankara, and Tehran to plot strategy against their common Arab enemies. For Angleton, the Mossad's operations showed that Israel wasn't just a partner or a client of the United States. It was a strategic ally around the world. The Israelis noted that the African policies of Egypt's Nasser blended into the overall interests of the Soviet Union. The Moscow-Cairo axis sought to win over the emerging independent states of Africa as allies— so Harrell and the Mossad countered by establishing links with national leaders across Africa with friendly offers of security training, timely intelligence, and commercial contracts, or more subtle approaches involving bribery and blackmail. At that time, the East-West conflict, USA versus the Soviet Union, raged throughout the continent, Halevi noted. The struggle for control over the mineral and other natural assets, many of key strategic importance, was a major feature of the Cold War. Angleton immediately understood the significance and value of the Israeli role and applauded it and encouraged it. In March 1963, Harrell had a falling out with Ben-Gurion in part because of the latter's handling of Israel's secret nuclear project. Harrell resigned and Ben-Gurion replaced him with Meir Amit, the methodical military man who had led the Israeli forces in the Suez War. Angleton also had a good relationship with Amit, Halevi said, which strengthened the CIA-Mossad relationship. We did not discuss Middle East affairs with the agency until the 1960s when Amit came in, Halevi said. Amit demanded Israel and Mossad be able to talk to the CIA about the Middle East and the Soviet Union, and they agreed. One result was KK Mountain, KK being the CIA's designation for messages and documents dealing with Israel. Millions in annual cash payments flowed to Mossad. In return, the Israelis authorized their agents to act as American surrogates throughout North Africa and in such countries as Kenya, Tanzania, and the Congo. Angleton was at ease in Israel. Jim had a weakness for Jews, says his friend Peter Sichel. He just liked us. When doing business in Jerusalem, Angleton still stayed at the King David. He found a spot down the hill from the hotel where he could get a closer look at the ancient walls of the old city. There he contemplated and harmonized his struggles. One CIA man started to wonder if Angleton wasn't too close to his Israeli friends. I remembered a long drive out into the desert in his Ford Falcon, wrote John Haddon Jr. in a memoir about growing up in a CIA family. Haddon was 12 years old when his father, John Haddon Sr., served as CIA station chief in Israel in the mid-1960s. 
We stopped in the middle of nowhere, the son wrote. Pop got us all out of the car and passed out peanut butter sandwiches wrapped by my mother in wax paper. He dove into the trunk and withdrew a small pruning shears. I'd never seen him handle a garden tool. He darted about quickly, clipping bits of shrubbery, keeping a lookout on the horizon. There was a fantastic dome a mile or two in the distance beyond some barbed wire. It was the nuclear reactor at Demona. Angleton had selected Haddon for the job as station chief, and the two men got along personally, but they had very different conceptions of their mission. I thought we ought to learn things about the Israelis, like whether or not they had a bomb, said Haddon. He didn't think so. John Haddon's espionage picnic produced one critical clue, the isotopic signature of the radioactive deposits on the plants he collected near the Demona site. The plant samples indicated a radiation source of 97.7% enriched uranium. For CIA scientists, that was notable. Almost all the nuclear reactors in the world used 93% enriched uranium. The more highly enriched uranium, which generates nuclear power more efficiently, was reserved for special purposes, such as powering U.S. nuclear submarines. Subsequent samples from around Demona confirmed Haddon's finding. The Israelis had obtained their nuclear fuel from an unusual source. But where? The state of Israel's pursuit of the ultimate destructive deterrent originated in the mind of David Ben-Gurion. Even as Israel secured its independence and its borders in 1948, Ben-Gurion felt its vulnerabilities keenly. He decided early on that the Jewish state needed nuclear weapons to defend itself, an audacious idea at a time when only four nations possessed atomic arsenals. Ben-Gurion vowed to use science and technology to ensure the Jewish people would never be as helpless as they were in Nazi Germany. Mastering atomic energy was Jewish self-defense, he said. What Einstein, Oppenheimer, and Teller, the three of them are Jews, made for the United States could also be done by scientists in Israel for their own people. To advance this ambition, Ben-Gurion surrounded himself with a group of like-minded men who could keep a secret. Angleton knew at least six of them. In Washington, he and Sicily had spent many evenings with Memi de Shalit, a Lithuanian-born military intelligence officer stationed in the Israeli embassy. Angleton adored Deshalit and his wife Ada, said Ephraim Halevi. The Deshalites moved back to Israel in the 1950s, but the friendship continued, and it brought Angleton into the circle of other knowledgeable Israelis. Amos Deshalit, Memi's brother, was a professor of nuclear physics at the Wiseman Institute of Science in Tel Aviv. He would be a major contributor to the Israeli nuclear program. Angleton's close ties with the Deshalit family and others in Israel made it inevitable that he would learn about the construction of the Demona reactor in the Negev, wrote reporter Seymour Hirsch. Angleton had first encountered Asher Ben-Natan, chief of nuclear procurement for the Israelis, as an OSS informant during the war. Ben-Natan was an Austrian Jew and had been born with the name Arthur Peer. After the war, he reported to OSS on the Jewish agency's efforts to help war refugees emigrate to Palestine. His code name was Conductor, and he was probably a source for Angleton's reporting on Jewish escape routes after the war. In 1956, Ben-Natan helped arrange for the initial transfer of French nuclear technology to the Demona site. When the reactor became active in 1965, his job was to arrange diversion of technology and material from European sources to fuel the reactor and amass a supply of weapons-grade uranium. Another protege of Ben-Gurion was Shimon Peres, a Russian-born, kibitz-raised newcomer in the defense ministry, 
a man whose ego was exceeded only by his ability. With Ben-Gurion's cabinet divided about the enormous expense of pursuing nuclear weapons, the old man put Perez in charge of a private fundraising campaign for Demona. The bottom line for me, Perez wrote in a memoir, was that I would have to raise money on the side to help pay for the reactor. We set up a discreet fundraising operation, which raised contributions totaling more than $40 million, half the cost of the reactor, and a very considerable sum in those days. Most of this money came from direct personal appeals by Ben-Gurion and myself to friends of Israel around the world. The idea was to raise money independently and outside the national budget, explained Abner Cohen, historian of the Israeli nuclear program. Money that would go by very few people. Ben-Gurion gave the authority, and Shimon Peres did the actual fundraising with wealthy Jews all over the world, and in particular in the United States. He would say, please give us money for a most secret project to ensure the future survival of the Jewish people. In the eyes of the Israelis, Cohen explained, there was no undertaking that was more important, more secretive, more costly, more existential, more sacred than the nuclear project. Everything is kosher, everything is okay, in order to make it happen. Everything. It was almost like a religious commitment to make it happen. The bomb is a way to ensure survival after the Holocaust, so they didn't have to give many details. People understood what they were talking about. One of those who understood best was David Lowenthal, a businessman from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Lowenthal grew up in the United States and went to Europe after the war to join the Haganah, the Jewish self-defense force. He helped purchase a ship, the Pan York, which enabled some 8,000 Jews to emigrate to Palestine. During the 1948 war, he served in the armed forces under the command of Meir Amit, the future Mossad chief, who was witting of Israel's secret nuclear program. I remember you as a big Zionist, Amit told Lowenthal late in life. Lowenthal returned to the United States in 1955 to go into business in Pennsylvania. With two other investors, he bought a shuttered steel manufacturing plant in Apollo, a small city 40 miles northeast of Pittsburgh. While planning to restart the company's steel production, Lowenthal used company stock to buy two other bankrupt firms in order to create a new holding company called Apollo Industries. The merger provided Apollo with usable assets, financing, and a rationale for the creation of another subsidiary, the Nuclear Materials and Equipment Corporation, or NUMAC. Lowenthal and his investors planned to develop a new product, nuclear fuel for use in commercial reactors. To run NUMAC, Lowenthal turned to Zalman Shapiro, a metallurgist then working for the Atomic Energy Commission. Shapiro was undeniably brilliant. The son of an Orthodox rabbi from Lithuania, he earned undergraduate and graduate degrees in engineering from Johns Hopkins University. Before age 40, Shapiro had four patents concerning the production of pure metals. He was considered one of the leading metallurgists in the U.S. nuclear industry, if not the world. Within months of Numex founding, Shapiro had applied for and received a nuclear materials license from the AEC. At the CIA, John Haddon would note the coincidence. The AEC issued its first license to handle highly enriched uranium to a private company financed by a group of active Zionists at a time when Israel was accelerating its efforts to acquire nuclear weapons. Numex started processing highly enriched uranium at Apollo in 1959. At that time, the U.S. government owned all supplies of the nuclear fuel, which private companies like Numex were allowed to use but had to return. 
Within a few years, worrisome signs appeared that the Apollo plant's security and accounting were deficient, even by the lenient standards of the day. Enriched uranium was disappearing from the Numec operation with unusual frequency. Unexplained handling losses occurred at other commercial plants, but Apollo's were proportionately larger. In October 1965, the AEC estimated that 178 kilograms of highly enriched uranium had gone missing from the Apollo plant. By March 1968, the figure was 267 kilograms. And that, John Haddon would conclude many years later, was the answer to his question, where did Israel get its nuclear material? The Israelis had stolen highly enriched uranium for the Demona reactor from Numec. The unexplained losses at the Apollo plant were the result of a heist. In the spring of 1965, a technician working the night shift at the Numec plant went out on a loading dock for a breath of fresh air. It was around nine in the evening. The technician saw an unusual sight. Zalman Shapiro, owner of the company, paced on the dock while a foreman and truck driver loaded cylindrical storage containers, known as stovepipes, onto a flatbed truck. The stovepipes, the technician explained, were used to store canisters of high-enriched materials in the vaults located at the Apollo nuclear facility. These were highly polished aluminum tubes with standard printed square yellow labels approximately three inches in diameter by six inches tall. They were used to store high-enriched uranium products, defined as 95% uranium. He was sure the men were handling canisters of highly enriched uranium due to the size and shape of the container and the labeling. He saw the shipping order, which said the material was bound for Israel. It was highly unusual to see Dr. Shapiro in the manufacturing section of the Apollo nuclear facility, the employee went on. It was unusual to see Dr. Shapiro there at night, and very unusual to see Dr. Shapiro so nervous. The next day, Numec's personnel manager visited the technician and threatened to fire him if he did not keep his mouth shut concerning what he had seen on the loading dock. It would be 15 years before the employee told the story to the FBI. What did Angleton know about Numec? He knew that the AEC and FBI were investigating the loss of uranium at the Apollo plant as early as 1965. As Israel desk officer, Angleton had to talk about the Numec case with Sam Papich, who was following it for the FBI. He also talked about it with John Haddon, who returned from Tel Aviv to serve Angleton in Washington. On the crime scene particulars, Haddon defended his former boss. Any suggestion that Angleton had helped the Israelis with the Numec operation was totally without foundation, he told journalists Andrew and Leslie Cockburn, but Haddon didn't deny that Angleton helped the Israeli nuclear program. Why would someone whose whole life was dedicated to fighting communism have any interest in preventing a very anti-communist nation getting the means to defend itself, he asked. The fact they stole it from us didn't worry him in the least, he said. I suspect that in his inmost heart, he would have given it to them if they asked for it. Haddon knew better than to investigate further. I never sent anything to Angleton on this, the nuclear program, because I knew he wasn't interested, he told his son, and I knew he'd try to stop it if I did. With the Israelis facing Arab enemies allied with the Soviet Union, Angleton had other priorities. War In May 1967, Angleton met with Dick Helms in the director's office suite on the seventh floor of CIA headquarters, 
Less than a year before, Helms had assumed the job as director of Central Intelligence. He wanted Angleton to read a memo that he was about to deliver to President Johnson concerning the growing military confrontation between Egypt and Israel. Helms and Angleton had known each other for over 22 years. They collaborated, one way or another, in hundreds of secret operations. Some CIA hands would wonder why Helms was so tolerant of Angleton's eccentricities. One reason was Angleton's performance during the Six-Day War. By late 1966, everybody was anticipating there would be an Israeli-Egyptian war one of these days, and we had reports about who was going to strike first, said Tom Hughes, then the director of the State Department's Intelligence and Research Bureau. Egypt's Gamal Nasser was probing for advantage. Ever since surviving the British-French-Israeli attack at Suez in 1956, Nasser had positioned himself as the champion of the Arab world, the person who would reverse the humiliation of Israel's existence. In response to Nasser's aggressive rhetoric, the Israelis engaged in a wide-ranging effort to upgrade their tanks and fighter jets. A CIA estimate in April 1967 concluded that both sides appear to appreciate that large-scale military action involves considerable risk and no assurance of leading to a solution. That equilibrium began to change in May, when Nasser requested the withdrawal of UN peacekeeping forces, which had provided a buffer between Egyptian and Israeli forces since the Suez War. To the dismay of U.S. officials, UN Secretary General Uthant agreed. On May 22nd, Nasser announced the closure of the Gulf of Aqaba to Israeli ships. Not only did Israel regard access to the Gulf as a vital interest, but also the United States asserted that the Gulf was an international waterway. President Johnson called on all parties to exercise restraint. Helms wanted Angleton's take on the agency's latest assessment. The memo, written by the Intelligence Directorate, asserted the Israelis were likely to strike first. They would prevail quickly over Egypt and other Arab armies because of their superior weapons, training, and discipline. Helms, the ever-cautious bureaucrat, hesitated due to the memo's categorical tone. We're really throwing everything on this one, he said. Angleton counseled certainty. It only takes a maybe, he told Helms, and you don't get the direct attention of the recipient. They begin to have a hundred thoughts rather than one thought. Helms sent the memo to President Johnson without qualifications. The atmosphere in Israel was very grim, recalls Ephraim Halevi. We called it the three weeks of suspense. The atmosphere was very gloomy. Isser Harrell said, there's going to be a war. He wanted to consecrate a number of places for mass graves, like the garden in the center of Tel Aviv. Meir Amit was very outspoken in the way he described the situation. When Amit asked John Haddon to come to his house, the CIA man counseled patience. I said, you've got to wait three weeks, Haddon recalled. You've got to give Johnson three weeks to try to broker peace. That you know and I know won't work, but we got to let him try, so that he can stand before the world and say, I tried to save face. You go to war now, he'll be in a position of not having kept you under control and not having tried to keep the peace. Let him go three weeks and he'll give you the green light and you can do whatever you want. Amit lost his temper, Haddon recalled. You're condemning 6,000, 12,000 Israelis by making me wait three weeks, he shouted. They're all going to get killed. The Israelis wanted to go to war on their own terms, but feared they might be abandoned by the United States as they had been at Suez. President Johnson sympathized, but was consumed by the enormity of managing the war in Vietnam. 
In the Sinai, IDF field commanders virtually demanded orders to attack. When Prime Minister Levi Eshkol hesitated, seeking more time for diplomacy, his cabinet rebelled and forced him to appoint Moshe Dayan as defense minister. The Israeli warhawks wanted another answer from Washington. Could they count on U.S. support or at least neutrality if they attacked? The advocates of a preemptive strike sent Amit to Washington. John Haddon flew with him. When they landed, Amit went straight to Langley to see Angleton. In his memoir, Amit described Angleton as a long-legged intellectual and a very talented person but controversial for his far-reaching theories regarding the Soviet Union. At the CIA, he was regarded with a certain mockery, but to us, this did not matter. His total identification with Israel was an extraordinary asset for us. He was, in Amit's words, the biggest Zionist of the lot. Ephraim Halevi says Angleton then escorted Amit to see Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. When Amit arrived, McNamara called the president by phone and spoke to him. After the call, Amit deduced that we had the green light, or at least a flexible light, Halevi said. Early on the morning of June 5th, Dick Helms was roused from his bed by the news that fighting had begun in the Middle East. The Israelis had launched a sneak attack. They sent a squadron of low-flying jets to decimate the planes of the Egyptian Air Force as they sat on the runways of a desert airbase. And when Jordan and Syria entered the war, Israel destroyed their air forces too. Within hours, Israeli troops were beginning to sweep over the Sinai Peninsula and surging into the old city of Jerusalem and across the west bank of the Jordan River. For President Johnson, the CIA had delivered. The agency's memoranda not only predicted that Israel would attack its Arab neighbors, but was accurate almost down to the day and time. The U.S. intelligence performance was not flawless. While reporting of events prior to the outbreak of the war was excellent, the coverage once the fighting began left much to be desired. At times, the U.S. government was blinded by technological issues. Making matters much worse, the National Security Agency's signal intelligence coverage of the war zone was violently degraded on the fourth day of fighting by Washington's putative ally, Israel. On the morning of June 8, 1967, the USS Liberty was the eyes and ears of the U.S. government in the Middle East war zone. A lightly armed frigate loaded with sophisticated radar, radio, and telemetry equipment the Liberty loitered in placid international waters 25 miles north of the Egyptian coast. The NSA analysts working below deck were recording and analyzing the radio communications of the various armies fighting in the Sinai and in Syria. The fog of war enveloped the State Department. The explanations for the Liberty's presence in the area are so totally bizarre that you have to think Angleton was behind it, said Tom Hughes, the State Department's intelligence chief. Here's an NSA ship, a covert listening ship that is taken off the African coast, pre-positioned just before the Israelis' attack off the Egyptian coast in international waters and is sitting there. Who ordered it to go there and why? NSA didn't seem to know. CIA didn't seem to know. The State Department certainly never knew. The Pentagon couldn't figure it out. Hughes speculated that Angleton wanted to pre-position the Liberty off Egypt as a hedge against Israeli battlefield reverses. For whatever reason, the Israelis treated the Liberty as a threat to be eliminated. Two unidentified aircraft circled the Liberty three times starting at 10.30 in the morning, causing little concern. The ship was flying a 5 by 8 foot American flag. Her name was painted on the stern in English, 
The ship's configuration, as shown in naval identification books, was, in the words of the subsequent Navy inquiry, clearly sufficient for the aircraft to identify her properly as a non-combatant ship. The Liberty's commander, William L. McGonagall, testified that at two in the afternoon he saw an aircraft of similar characteristics, if not identical, to the jets seen earlier, which began firing on the ship. Eight men were killed or died as a result of injuries suffered during the initial bombardment. Then three high-speed boats approached in flank formation, with the middle boat flying an Israeli flag. An explosion blasted a hole 39 feet wide on the starboard side of the ship, killing another 25 NSA personnel. The Liberty came to a dead stop and started to list. When sailors began to lower lifeboats into the water, the Israelis fired on them, too. Eventually, the attacks ceased. A total of 34 men had been killed and 171 injured. The attack was deliberate, according to McGonagall. Secretary of State Dean Rusk passed a stern note to the Israeli ambassador, calling the incident an act of military recklessness reflecting wanton disregard for human life. Clark Clifford, a veteran presidential advisor and chairman of the president's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, declared it was inconceivable that the shelling was an accident. The Israelis quickly apologized, asserting their forces had mistaken the liberty for El Qasir, an Egyptian steamer reported in the vicinity. They called the attack a tragic error. President Johnson ordered an investigation. The next day, the CIA produced its first analysis, which exonerated the Israelis. The paper concluded erroneously that there was little doubt that the Israelis failed to identify the Liberty as a U.S. ship before or during the attack. The Liberty could easily have been mistaken for El Qasir, the memo asserted, a claim that the U.S. Navy would soon repudiate. The report was compiled from all available sources, probably by Angleton, the Israel desk officer. Israel knew perfectly well that the ship was American, said Admiral Thomas Moore, chief of naval operations at the time. Moore, who later became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, concluded the attack was intended to maximize Israel's territorial gains. I am confident that Israel knew the liberty could intercept radio messages from all parties and potential parties to the ongoing war, then in its fourth day, and that Israel was preparing to seize the Golan Heights from Syria despite President Johnson's known opposition to such a move, Moorer said. I think they realized that if we learned in advance of their plan, there would be a tremendous amount of negotiating between Tel Aviv and Washington. What is so chilling and cold-blooded, of course, he said, is that they, the Israelis, could kill as many Americans as they did in confidence that Washington would cooperate in quelling any public outcry. Angleton cooperated. When a ceasefire took effect on June 11th, Israel had defeated all three of its Arab enemies, a resounding victory that expanded the land of Israel from the Sinai to the West Bank to the Golan Heights. The CIA had won a victory, too, thanks to Angleton's Israeli contacts. The agency had correctly predicted when the war would start, who would win it, and why the Soviet Union could not or would not intervene. President Johnson was impressed. After the Six-Day War, Johnson started inviting Dick Helms to his weekly Tuesday lunches with Secretary of State Dean Rusk and Defense Secretary Bob McNamara. Angleton burnished the CIA's reputation and delivered Helms into the good graces of the president. Helms had every reason to be eternally grateful to him. Chaos 
Later that summer, Angleton was back in Dick Hallam's office for another meeting about a war, the war that had come to the streets of America. Tom Caramacinus, whom Helms had promoted to Deputy Director of Operations, was there, too. The weather outside was balmy, the mood inside grim. Angleton felt besieged by the growing criticism of the agency. In 1965, he had learned from his sources at the New York Times that the paper was querying its reporters worldwide about CIA activities. The very questions, he told Times editor Harrison Salisbury, betrayed the hand of Soviet operatives. Then, in February 1967, Ramparts Magazine, a left-wing monthly, laid bare the international operations of Cord Meyer, Angleton's friend and fishing companion. In a series of articles, the magazine exposed the CIA's funding of the National Student Association and of the AFL-CIO's Jay Lovestone, his longtime friend and frequent houseguest. One corner of Angleton's intelligence empire was exposed and subjected to scrutiny, questions, and denunciation for the first time. Opposition to the war in Vietnam was growing and spreading. The sort of patriotic unity seen during World War II and the Korean War was gone. In April 1967, anti-war rallies in New York City and San Francisco attracted hundreds of thousands of people, including Nobel Prize winner Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who had never before involved himself in foreign policy issues. Philosopher Bertrand Russell made headlines by convening a war crimes tribunal in Sweden to judge U.S. actions in Vietnam. Anti-war groups from around the world gathered in Stockholm to plan their next actions. At the same time, racial disorder turned many of America's urban neighborhoods into battle zones. The country suffered more than 160 civic disturbances in 1967 alone, eight of which were classified as major riots. In Newark, New Jersey, a protest march against police brutality was followed by stone-throwing, looting, and gunfire. The National Guard was called in to restore order. In the course of a week, 23 people were killed. Ten days later, Detroit, the country's fourth-largest city, erupted in violence when police shut down a string of private social clubs patronized by blacks. The National Guard could not control the streets. So President Johnson sent in U.S. Army paratroopers. In a week of rioting, 34 people were killed and hundreds injured. Detroit was the new benchmark, its rubble a monument to the most devastating race riot in U.S. history, and a symbol of domestic crisis grown graver than any since the Civil War, said the editors of Newsweek magazine. President Johnson suspected a conspiracy behind the anti-war movement and the black nationalist insurgency, in his now-regular meetings with Helms, Johnson nagged the CIA director for help. On August 15th, Helms called in Angleton and Karamasinas. He ordered them to set up a new intelligence collection program to keep tabs on anti-war leaders and black militants traveling abroad. The mission of spying on U.S. citizens, even if they were overseas, had definite domestic counterintelligence aspects, as Karamasinas delicately put it. It was a job for Angleton. Helms wanted suggestions for a senior officer who could run such a program. Angleton offered Richard Ober. Like Angleton, Ober had a bookish pedigree. His father had run a literary agency, and he had attended Harvard before joining the CIA. Ober was already investigating possible foreign intelligence connections in the Ramparts stories, so he was prepared to expand the scope of CIA interest per the president's wishes. Karamasinas asked Angleton to assign a cryptonym to the project 
so that cable traffic can be suitably handled on a limited basis. Operation Chaos was born. Before it was terminated six years later, Chaos would spy on and infiltrate the entire anti-war movement, not just people or organizations that engaged in violence or contracted foreign governments. Angleton's program indexed the names of 300,000 Americans in the agency's Hydra computer system. Chaos opened files on 7,200 individuals and more than 100 organizations. More than 5,000 reports were sent to the FBI. Chaos expanded Angleton's empire of surveillance. And still, Angleton worried. There were so many dangers to deter, so many secrets to keep, so few who could be trusted. His family was drifting away. His colleagues were daring to question his theories. The multiple martinis at lunch blurred his judgment and compounded his paranoia. And his annual fishing trips with work pals on the Brule River in Wisconsin or the Mattapedia River in Canada provided only temporary respite from the perils he battled. Angleton still sought to convince British and American colleagues that Labour Party leader Harold Wilson was a Soviet agent of influence. He still argued the supposed diplomatic spat and shooting war between the Soviet Union and China was an elaborate exercise in disinformation to deceive the West. In March 1966, Angleton and Golitsyn flew to London unannounced to make their case to Sir Maurice Oldfield, a longtime friend who was a senior SIS officer. They spun a theory of a monstrous KGB plot to disarm the West without firing a shot. The whole performance, one British official noted dryly, was somewhat extraordinary, but then Jim and Anatoly are quite extraordinary chaps. The continuing detention of Nosenko provoked growing criticism inside the agency. Nosenko had been removed from his Spartan attic in Clinton, Maryland, in August 1965 and shipped to an even harsher black site at Camp Peary, the CIA base in southern Virginia. Angleton would deny that he ever visited the Camp Peary site, but a memo later surfaced that showed he had been informed about the details of its construction and was provided with photographs of its completion. Under the persistent questioning from Pete Bagley, Nosenko was caught in many misstatements, but never changed his story. He was a defector who wanted to help the U.S. government. For his temerity on insisting he was telling the truth, Nosenko says he was dosed with LSD. I was simply floating, he later recalled. I was almost half-conscious, and suddenly I couldn't breathe. I couldn't take air in. I couldn't take air out. I almost died. They, the prison guards, noticed on the TV camera. They immediately came and took me out of the cell. Next door was my shower stall. They put me under shower, cold water, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot. I couldn't even describe it. I never had such an experience in my life. I'm sure it was LSD. MK Ultra still haunted the CIA. The dream that drugs could serve the ends of espionage. Angleton was responsible. They had tried everything, lie detector tests, so on and so forth, said CIA psychologist John Gittinger. They decided to try some kind of drugs on him. Word of Nosenko's plight reached George Kisewalter and other officers who thought he was a bona fide defector. One of them, Leonard McCoy, a reports officer, implored Division Chief David Murphy to share the results of Nosenko's interrogation with others. Murphy finally did and the CIA war over Nosenko escalated. In December 1965, McCoy wrote up a 41-page memo making the case that Nosenko was a bona fide defector, not a KGB asset. 
Helms then asked the Soviet Russia Division and Angleton's staff to come to a consensus on the man's authenticity. Angleton and Murphy rejected McCoy's analysis. They insisted that Nosenko was a false defector. McCoy countered that Angleton's belief that all Soviet defectors since Galitsyn were fakes had generated a widespread feeling of frustration, futility, and impotence. In February 1967, Pete Bagley replied to McCoy with a report running to 800 pages, arguing that Nosenko was under KGB control. He listed hundreds of unexplained gaps and discrepancies in Nosenko's story, but the sheer volume of Bagley's argument was greater than its persuasive power. In the words of one agency historian, Angleton and his acolytes had developed substantial circumstantial evidence, but no hard proof in the form of a confession from Nosenko. Angleton was still flailing after the elusive mole known as Sasha. He suspected a man named Orlov, who had worked for the agency in the 1950s. Orlov ran a picture frame shop in Alexandria, Virginia. The FBI put his store under constant surveillance. No suspicious activities or contacts were observed. Galitsyn offered a new theory to Angleton. Maybe Dave Murphy, chief of the Soviet Russia division, was the mole. Galitsyn found it suspicious that Murphy had agreed so readily to the hostile interrogation of Nosenko. Maybe he was protecting the mole by confining Nosenko so he couldn't be followed, Galitsyn said. Galitsyn had no real evidence for this theory, but Angleton was persuaded, at least enough to ask Helms to transfer Murphy to a less sensitive position. Murphy was assigned to be station chief in Paris. He was suspected of being the mole he had been attempting to find. In October 1967, Helms overruled Angleton for the first time. Vexed by the impasse over Nosenko's bona fides, Helms transferred responsibility for the case to the Office of Security. Nosenko was moved to a safe house in Washington. It was scheduled for controlled release to civilian life in January 1969. Angleton had lost control of his prize prisoner. He feared the KGB was prevailing. He believed he knew who was responsible. Kim Philby. Two Boxers Untouchable and isolated in his work and family, Angleton grew more angular, a stork among men. His suits grew baggier, his eyes more hollowed. Most days he arrived at headquarters mid-morning and read through stacks of files. He favored long, liquid lunches, often with Ray Roca, other colleagues, or foreign friends— he returned to the office late in the afternoon and worked at his desk until the late hours of the night. Angleton traveled often. He went to London to see top MI6 men. He stopped in Rome to see old friends. He spent time in Pretoria, then under apartheid. He attended conferences in New Zealand and Australia, and he always returned to Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. He took his vacations at the family homes in Tucson and Wisconsin or on remote rivers in Idaho or the Adirondacks. At the house on 33rd Road in Arlington, he liked to spend time in his steamy greenhouse conceiving intricate plans to bring forth perfect beauty. As his orchids bloomed, his mood blackened. Intoxicated with alcohol and Anatoly Galitsyn's theories about KGB moles, Angleton saw suspects everywhere. He thought Americans at the highest levels of power were succumbing to the monster plot of Soviet strategic deception— the forces of despotic communism led by a masterful KGB were advancing, and the free world was in retreat. The Russians, he feared, had even penetrated CIA's headquarters. 
In violation of the law and all security procedures, Angleton shared sensitive CIA personnel files with Golitsyn, who used them to finger more suspected spies. Their methods were sloppy, speculative, and not subject to review. The mole hunt had become a witch hunt. Angleton concluded Vasya Gmirkin, a Russian-born officer, might actually be a KGB sleeper agent. He wasn't, but Angleton blocked his promotion for years. Angleton became convinced on the slightest of evidence that Leslie James Bennett, a senior counterintelligence official for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, was a communist spy. Angleton hounded him into retirement. Bennett was innocent. Angleton insisted that Yuri Loginov, a KGB officer who defected in South Africa, was just another dispatched agent and returned him to his former colleagues. Loginov was a genuine defector. Rumor had it the KGB sent him to a firing squad. Angleton was a lethal man who had real reason to worry about the lingering suspicions surrounding the assassination of President Kennedy. A series of popular books in 1965 and 1966 challenged the findings of the Warren Commission. The editors of two of the country's most popular magazines, Life and Look, called for a new investigation of the Dallas tragedy. In March 1967, syndicated columnist Drew Pearson reported that the CIA had enlisted mafia figures, including Harvey's pal Johnny Rosselli, in a plot to kill Fidel Castro. The column offered the opinion that Castro had learned of the plot and struck first. It was a sensational story and, as Angleton knew full well, accurate, at least with respect to Harvey and Rosselli. Worst of all, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison had arrested a local businessman, Clay Shaw, and charged him with conspiring to assassinate President Kennedy with the help of Lee Harvey Oswald and others. Garrison didn't know much about how the clandestine service actually operated, but he was correct that Shaw was a CIA operative. As a traveling businessman, Shaw had been periodically debriefed by the agency's domestic contact service between 1949 and 1956. Agency officials would later tell reporters that Shaw was an unpaid informant, but that was a cover story. Kenneth MacDonald, a CIA historian who reviewed Shaw's file in the 1990s, described him as a highly paid contract source. The growing skepticism about the Warren Commission had even infected Wynne Scott in Mexico City. Angleton's friend from OSS days had served as chief of station in the Mexican capital since 1956. Under State Department cover, Scott had built one of the most effective CIA outposts anywhere. In a country where nationalist resentment of Yankee power was the norm, Scott charmed three Mexican presidents onto the CIA payroll and made friends everywhere he went. He had reported on Lee Harvey Oswald in a timely way both before and after JFK was killed. He had cooperated with the Warren Commission without compromising any agency operations. Needless to say, he was well-informed and nobody's fool. Elena Garo de Paz, a poet and friend of his wife, told Scott she had seen Oswald at a party in Mexico City and that Oswald had had a brief affair with Sylvia Duran, a receptionist in the Cuban consulate. Scott initially dismissed the story, but Charles Thomas, a State Department officer in Mexico, had also heard the story and did some investigating on his own. He found reason to believe the story of an Oswald Duran fling, and Scott came to believe it too. That Sylvia Duran had sexual intercourse with Oswald is probably new, but adds little to the Oswald case, he advised headquarters. 
Angleton was not happy when Scott shared his view of the JFK case with the longtime British friend Ferguson Dempster, the chief of the SIS station in Mexico. When Dempster wrote a letter to his bosses in London summarizing Scott's JFK thoughts, someone at the CIA, probably Angleton, managed to obtain two pages of the letter. Dick Helms was not happy either. He ordered Bill Bro, chief of the Western Hemisphere Division, to reprimand Scott. Bro sent Scott a blind memo under his cryptonym, Thomas Lund. We have received from a very sensitive source two pages only of a letter almost certainly by Lyosage, the CIA's code name for Dempster, to his home office reporting on comments he claims made by you. We recognize that any such remarks by you could well be taken out of context, no matter how carefully made. Nevertheless, you should be aware the letter was written and be guided accordingly. Scott did not fail to appreciate the sharp edge sheathed in his boss's politesse, be guided accordingly. It would be most unfortunate if there should ever be any leak. Scott had clashed with Angleton before. In 1961, the counterintelligence chief sought to set up offices in Mexico City that would report to Angleton directly. Scott objected vehemently, and their friendship cooled. They were like two boxers in the ring, eyeing each other. Who's going to strike? said one station officer who knew them both. There were two tigers who were looking at each other. Who was going to pounce first? Wynne didn't say much about Angleton. He wasn't someone to make statements about other people that were derogatory. He was a very fair guy, but I don't think he trusted Angleton. Angleton's message to Scott was clear. Shut up about JFK, or else. In September 1967, Dick Helms convened a committee of CIA men that came to be known as the Garrison Group for its close attention to the New Orleans district attorney who was trying to prove a JFK conspiracy. The Garrison Group was controlled by Angleton. The executive director was his friend, Wister Janney. His deputy, Ray Rocha, was the most active member. The Garrison Group did not investigate the conspiracy theories that Angleton would espouse later in life, Mostly, it sought to gauge what Garrison had learned about CIA operations in New Orleans in the summer of 1963, a point of vulnerability for both Helms and Angleton. Ray Rocha feared the worst. At the group's first meeting in the fall of 1967, Rocha opined that Garrison would indeed obtain a conviction of Shaw for conspiring to assassinate President Kennedy, a prediction that was noteworthy less for its inaccuracy, Shaw would be acquitted, than for the fact that it was made at all. At a time when many in the Washington press corps, relying on government sources, publicly dismissed Garrison's case as flimsy, one of Angleton's top deputies said privately that Garrison might be able to persuade a jury that a CIA man had connived with Oswald. Heist As the CIA's Israel desk officer, Angleton was responsible for reporting on the Jewish state's continuing efforts to secure a nuclear arsenal. He didn't do a very good job. The last chapter of the great Israeli uranium heist took place on his watch, and he was apparently none the wiser. It happened on September 10, 1968, when four men arrived at the two-story brick building in Apollo, Pennsylvania, that housed the offices of the Nuclear Materials and Equipment Corporation. Across the street was the long, low-slung building where Numac packaged and stored enriched uranium, the four men were authorized by the U.S. government to visit Numec. The company's president, Zalman Shapiro, had written to the security office of the Atomic Energy Commission seeking permission to host a group of Israeli scientists. 
The men were visiting the facility to discuss thermoelectric devices unclassified, he wrote. Shapiro lied to the AEC, albeit plausibly. The four men who got out of their cars could have passed for scientists. One of them, Avraham Hermoni, actually was a scientist. He served as scientific counselor at the Israeli embassy in Washington. He came to that position from serving as technical director of Israel's National Center for Weapons Development, known as Raphael. Hermoni was accompanied by Dr. Ephraim Biegun. According to Shapiro's paperwork, he supposedly worked for the Department of Electronics at the Ministry of Defense in Israel. Actually, Biegun ran the technical department of Shin Bet, the Israeli domestic security force. He was a master of things we had only read about in books, said his colleague Avraham Bendor. Bendor was the third man in the crew. He also worked in the electronics department, according to Shapiro. In fact, he was on special assignment to LACOM, the Science Liaison Bureau, a secret Israeli operation which had responsibility for stealing nuclear technologies and materials. The fourth man visiting Numek that day was Raphael Eitan. He was not a chemist, as Shapiro claimed. He was the mastermind of the whole operation. Eitan was a small man with an outsized reputation for trickery. Of Russian ancestry, he grew up in Palestine and joined the Haganah as a boy of twelve. In the 1948 war, he fought under the command of Yitzhak Rabin. He joined the Mossad and distinguished himself on dangerous operations, such as the kidnapping of Adolf Eichmann. He came to Apollo, Pennsylvania in September 1968 to advance another operation in defense of the Jewish people. Zalman Shapiro didn't talk about such things. After meeting with the four Israelis, Shapiro informed the AEC via letter that his discussion with Israeli nationals concerned the possibility of developing plutonium-fueled thermoelectric generator systems. The presence of Rafi Eitan was the tip-off to U.S. officials in the know. Anthony Cordesman, a former Defense Department official, said the meeting in Apollo constituted extremely hard evidence that Eitan was operating with Israeli intelligence in the United States. There is no conceivable reason for Eitan to have gone to the Apollo plant but for the nuclear material. John Haddon, now working for Angleton in Washington, concluded Eitan was the mastermind of the great uranium heist. Absconding with a couple hundred pounds of contraband from an unguarded facility, Haddon noted, was an easier task than absconding with a war criminal. When Zalman Shapiro died in 2016, much of his obituary was devoted to denials that he had diverted nuclear material to Israel. The hundreds of pounds of highly enriched uranium had simply gotten lost in the Apollo plant, said Mark Lowenthal, son of New Mech financier David Lowenthal, in an email. His father, who had died in 2006, never mentioned anything about the supposedly missing materials. David was an ultra-American patriot and would never break any American laws. So while the myth surrounding Numek makes for a great conspiracy theory, when all the dust, or half-life of the dust, settles, I'm sure it will show that there wasn't any theft. But neither Shapiro nor Lowenthal could explain why Rafi Eitan and company had visited the Numek plant in 1968 disguised as nuclear scientists. It was obviously some intelligence operation, a special operation, says historian Avner Cohen. Rafi Eitan, he is not a scientist. He is not directly related to the nuclear project. He is an operational person, a secrecy person. If you do something that you need a great deal of secrecy... This is a signal that the Mossad is involved in something, which is probably extraordinary.
Kim again. As his 50th birthday approached in December 1967, Angleton took refuge in Israel, where his troubles seemed farther away and his friends closer. For companionship, he brought along his intellectual soulmate, Anatoly Golitsyn. Upon arrival, Angleton was greeted by John Denley Walker, a career officer who had succeeded John Haddon as chief of the Tel Aviv station. Angleton asked Walker to arrange to have a case of whiskey delivered to his hotel room. When it arrived, Angleton told Walker he suspected the liquor might have been poisoned by the KGB. Walker explained he had bought the whiskey at the embassy commissary and delivered it himself. Angleton would not be dissuaded. When Walker said Angleton was on the verge of a nervous breakdown and insisted he go home, Angleton shouted he would make sure Walker never got a decent assignment again. Walker relented. Angleton and Golitsyn went to Eilat, a resort town in southern Israel on the Gulf of Aqaba. Angleton's Israeli friends had invited him to celebrate his 50th birthday. We had a big party for him, recalled Ephraim Halevi. Angleton retrieved the Washington Post from his doorstep on Wednesday morning, March 15, 1968. He read the front-page headlines and flipped through the inner pages, scanning the wire service stories and department store advertisements. He turned to page A-12 and found himself reading an article from hell. Philby tells of his spy role here in book released today. Angleton was not entirely surprised by the news that his former friend had written a book. A few months before, the Sunday Times of London had published an interview with Philby from Moscow in which the now-famous spy said he was writing a memoir. Angleton was unprepared for the tenor of the Post story, which he read with incredulity, mounting toward rage. My Silent War will be must-reading in both the CIA and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Post reported, not only for its description of clandestine operations, but also for its intimate personal descriptions of the men Philby dealt with in both agencies. The article reported that James Angleton of the CIA was one of Philby's chief contacts— Furious, Angleton called Ben Bradley and demanded an explanation. The Post had blown his cover, he said. Bradley insisted Philby's book was news. By the time the conversation ended, their decade-old friendship was over. Angleton read My Silent War not only as a friend betrayed, but also as a counterintelligence professional exposed. The book was a witty, malicious account of Philby's sixteen years in the lion's den of the capitalist ruling class— while playing the part of an affable civil servant, Philby relished acting as silent avenger in the class struggle. He enjoyed playing his bourgeois colleagues for fools and took pleasure in sending the CIA's foot soldiers off to certain death. His description of Bill Harvey and Alan Dulles were sketched in acid. His allusions to Angleton were affectionate, condescending, and devastating. Of their last meeting in June 1951, Philby recalled Angleton wanted to convey certain concerns to colleagues in London. I did not even take the trouble to memorize them, Philby said. It was a cruel kiss-off for a former friend. Angleton tried not to take the book personally. He concluded that Philby was targeting him in public in order to protect ongoing KGB operations. Just as he had protected Burgess and McLean back in 1951, so Philby was seeking to protect other moles now. My Silent War, Angleton decided, was the latest gambit in the Soviet strategic deception policy. In fact, Philby's master conspiracy occurred only in Angleton's wounded imagination. In Moscow, 
The KGB had made Philby a general, but relegated him to training sessions and other non-sensitive assignments, much to Philby's frustration. There's no evidence Philby targeted Angleton. Philby was mostly thinking about Philby. The key to Philby, if there is a single one, wrote James McCarger in the New York Times book review, is less likely to be found in the surface manifestations of his love or the faults of the British establishment than it is in a compulsion to betray and deceive which underlay all his relationships. Angleton knew better than anyone. During Angleton's frequent absences from home, Sicily and his daughters talked about the war in Vietnam among themselves. They hated it and opposed it. Truffy and Lucy had come back from college converted. They joined in the anti-war marches that their father disdained. The counterculture had come to another CIA family. Angleton was not phased by the so-called Tet Offensive of January 1968, the surprise uprising of communist forces on Tet, the country's New Year celebration, had brought the war to Saigon, the capital of South Vietnam. A daring squad of Viet Cong guerrillas breached the walls of the U.S. Embassy before a larger corps of U.S. Marines annihilated them. Angleton argued with numerical accuracy that the North Vietnamese had suffered heavy losses in the offensive. He disputed that the communists had scored a major psychological victory. Even his own family didn't believe him. Angleton was not a political partisan. He conceived of his job as that of serving the agency and the president, but he knew how power was wielded or squandered. In spring 1968, he knew he would have a new boss come November, and it mattered who it was. With President Lyndon Johnson forswearing a second term, the innocuous vice president, Hubert Humphrey, announced his intention to become the Democratic presidential nominee. So did Bobby Kennedy, brother of the slain president, who was now a senator from New York while still living at Hickory Hill in McLean. On the Republican side, former Vice President Richard Nixon was running, and so was California Governor Ronald Reagan. On April 4, 1968, TV broadcasters announced the news that Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot to death as he stood on the balcony of a Memphis hotel. The Angletons lived in tranquil, tree-lined North Arlington, but they saw on their television what was happening not five miles away in Washington, D.C. Crowds of black people were avenging King's death by smashing windows and looting stores up and down the 14th Street commercial corridor. Hunter S. Thompson's fear and loathing had come to the nation's capital. Like everyone else, Angleton struggled to comprehend the latest news. On June 5th, Robert Kennedy, walking off from a victory speech after winning California's Democratic presidential primary, was shot in the crowded kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, apparently by a Palestinian waiter named Sirhan Sirhan. RFK died the next morning. Angleton suspected organized crime figures were behind the assassination. The secrets and suspicions and cigarette smoke saturated and overwhelmed Angleton. One evening, when visiting a friend, he began coughing up blood. He was taken to the George Washington University Hospital, where he was diagnosed with a bleeding ulcer. Angleton was at the zenith of his power, although the strain was beginning to tell on him, Peter Wright wrote of his American friend, he was making enemies throughout the CIA in the Soviet division and among those officers whose promotion prospects he had adversely affected, Wright said. He was safe while Helms was director, but the war in Vietnam was rapidly altering the face of the agency. 
Angleton's suspicions had effectively stunted or ended the careers of colleagues who were guilty of nothing. Peter Carlo had been forced into retirement. Paul Garbler had been dispatched to a backwater station in the Caribbean. Richard Kovitch had been relegated to a Camp Peary teaching job. David Murphy had been shunted to the Paris station. J. Edgar Hoover had withdrawn the FBI from the Honatol Committee, but Angleton's mole hunt continued. One evening, Angleton and Peter Wright traded conspiracy theories until four in the morning at a Chinese restaurant in Arlington. As Cicely Angleton said of her husband and his colleagues, their nerves were shot. We were both on the rack, Wright wrote. So much depended on making the right assumptions about the defectors. For him, the assassination of the president. For me, the next move in the mole hunt. The two men walked back to Angleton's Mercedes. It was parked near the Iwo Jima Memorial, adjacent to Arlington National Cemetery. Angleton was staunch in his reverence for the American flag and patriotic symbols like the statue of U.S. soldiers planting the flag of victory over Japan. He paused to look at the marble men bathed in the glow of spotlights. His own silent war against the KGB was never-ending. This is Kim's work, Angleton muttered. His betrayed love had curdled into a mad obsession. Part 4 Legend Nixon when Alan Dulles died at age 75 in January 1969, Angleton responded with practiced tradecraft. He led an office of security team which passed through Dulles's home in Georgetown. Angleton secured classified papers in the office, while technicians installed secure phone lines to handle the expected flood of condolence calls. A few days later, Angleton carried the ashes of his friend in a wooden box as he walked out of Georgetown Presbyterian Church and into the rainy Washington morning of February 1, 1969. Alan Welsh Dulles, the friend, mentor, and father figure he had met in that Rome hotel room so many years ago, was gone. In the ritual of memorial, Angleton was given an honored role to hold the box of dust to which the great man had returned. Angleton emerged from the white church with a full head of gray hair, a distinguished brow, large black-rimmed glasses enlarging his eyes, and a tightly knotted tie. He was not one to let his sadness show. The CIA men gathered on the cobblestone street outside and in the church's cool wooden interior, spare in the way of Presbyterians. There was the suave Dick Helms, the unpretentious Tom Karamasinus, the stoic Cord Meyer, and the dashing David Phillips, who had dubbed Dulles the Great White Case Officer, an epithet that captured the Anglo-Saxon chauvinism that suffused his career. Dulles's widow, Clover, sat in the front pew with daughter Joan and son Alan Macy. The Angletons, the Truitts, and the Bradleys mixed with the CIA families and several hundred mourners from the many walks of Dulles's life— in every pew sat columnists and editors, ambassadors and bankers, senators and congressmen, painters and novelists. There was Robert McNamara, the former defense secretary, looking haunted, and William Rogers, the new secretary of state. The corpulent and corrupt vice president of the United States, Spiro Agnew, attended as the representative of the newly elected president, Richard Nixon. The eulogy, written by retired diplomat Charles Murphy, with contributions from Angleton, was read by Dick Helms. Perhaps we can now find it in ourselves to say that we shall always be with him, Helms declaimed. 
To say that for us, as for him, patriotism sets no bounds on the wider pursuit of truth in the defense of freedom and liberty. That was the consoling message for the mourners, a fitting benediction in the Church of Spies, a celebration of a patriotism that sets no bounds on the wider pursuit of truth. Like Dulles, Angleton set no bounds on his patriotism, and like Dulles, he was glad Richard Nixon was in the White House. I know how vitally important the work of this organization is, President Nixon said to the crowded auditorium on the first floor of CIA headquarters in Langley. It was March 7, 1969, a spring day with a hopeful warmth, outside and in. In the first months of his administration, the 37th president made the rounds of the largest federal agencies. Nixon wanted to introduce himself to the men and women of the CIA, and in the case of Angleton, to reintroduce himself. I also know that this organization has a mission that, by necessity, runs counter to some of the very deeply held traditions in this country and feelings, high idealistic feelings, about what a free society ought to be, Nixon said to the sea of faces before him. The audience included Helms and Angleton and their top deputies, as well as various division chiefs and their assistants. These were the men and women who spied on America's friends and enemies, stole secrets, opened mail, intercepted radio signals, dispensed with unfriendly governments, organized armies, controlled newspapers, burglarized embassies, and assassinated terrorists. The Ivy League panache of the CIA men made Nixon sweat. But on this day, he commanded them by embracing their truth, a mission that by necessity runs counter to some of the very deeply held traditions in this country. Nixon was calling their attention to the obvious, if unspoken, business at hand. The CIA was a law-breaking agency responsible for defending a law-abiding democracy. This is a dilemma, Nixon admitted, his jaw jutting. He was a hard man, a plain man, a salesman. It is one that I wish did not exist. A humble man, Nixon knew how to flatter. I look upon this organization as not one that is necessary for the conduct of conflict or war, he said, but in the final analysis, it is one of the great instruments of our government for the preservation of peace, for the avoidance of war. I think the American people need to understand that this agency, he looked around the auditorium of the clandestine service, is a necessary adjunct to the conduct of the presidency. Nixon's words echoed Angleton's conception of the CIA, one of the great instruments of our government, a necessary adjunct to the conduct of the presidency. Angleton thought Nixon measured up to past presidents. He did not have the gravitas of a Dwight Eisenhower, nor the complacency. Nixon had none of the charisma of Jack Kennedy, and none of the weakness either. He had little of Lyndon Johnson's crude forcefulness, and rather more subtlety. After eight years of JFK and LBJ in the White House, Angleton regarded Nixon as a welcome improvement. No president, he believed, better understood the threat of communism in all of its dimensions than Richard Milhouse Nixon. Nixon and Angleton had more than a working acquaintance, dating back to their discussions about getting tough on Cuba. They shared an instinct of impatience, an abhorrence of liberal illusion, an intolerance for disorder, a dedication to action, a love of America, and a thirst for information about their enemies. They shared a mission higher than law, and they would share a common fate. 
A devastating explosion at 18 West 11th Street in New York City on the night of March 6, 1970, gutted the four-story brick townhouse in a thunderous few seconds. The sound was heard miles away. In Washington, the explosion on the genteel Greenwich Village Street would set off something close to panic among the U.S. government's top law enforcement and intelligence professionals. The building was the home of Kathy Wilkerson, a college student and member of a revolutionary group that called itself the Weathermen or the Weather Underground. As federal agents sifted through the smoldering rubble and interviewed Wilkerson's parents, they obtained a more frightening understanding of the group's intentions. The brownstone had been a haven for men and women who styled themselves after Kay Guevara and Ho Chi Minh. The FBI counted 21 members of the Weather Underground at large who spoke of bringing the war home. They were violent, elusive, and sure to strike again. A couple of them had been working in the basement of the townhouse, preparing a homemade explosive device equipped with several pounds of dynamite. They planned to plant it on the U.S. Army base at Fort Dix, New Jersey. One of the bomb makers made a mistake. A crossed circuit, a stray spark, a drug-induced stumble. The explosives detonated, and the bomb maker was obliterated. Three people in the house were killed instantly. Two women climbed out of the ruins and ran away before police or ambulances arrived on the scene. The top men at the FBI and CIA were disturbed. The anti-war movement had been growing for years and becoming more violent. The civil rights movement had generated the black nationalist insurgency that dismissed the polite agenda of the late Martin Luther King Jr. in favor of nothing less than reclaiming city streets from white cops— in early 1969, J. Edgar Hoover had reported more than 100 attacks by black extremists on police, double the rate of the previous six months. The Bureau, in league with local police officers, had responded with COINTELPRO measures to harass, disrupt, discredit, and, in Hoover's ominous word, neutralize black leaders. None of it seemed to be doing much good to stem the tide of violence in America. The nation's college campuses were more tumultuous than ever. Eight leaders of the protests at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago had been indicted on conspiracy charges, although what they had conspired to do was hazy. In Santa Barbara, California, an anti-war crowd torched a Bank of America branch office. In New York, the offices of IBM, Saucony Oil, and General Telephone and Electric were bombed. In May, four students were shot dead by National Guardsmen at Ohio's Kent State University, the nation's campuses overflowed with talk of revolution, and the radio airwaves resounded with the dirge of protest, four dead in Ohio. Neither the CIA nor the FBI had any sources in the weather underground. The group seemed to have logistical support across the United States and internationally. They proclaimed their intention to inflict violence on American targets— and the U.S. government had no solid information about their plans, capabilities, or weaponry, except for what Angleton maintained in his lingual files. As President Nixon demanded action to combat the tide of what he called revolutionary terrorism, Angleton was ready to help, along with his friend Bill Sullivan, assistant director of the FBI. With Tom Houston, an aide to Nixon, they developed a proposal for unifying the government's domestic counterintelligence apparatus to deal with the growing crisis. Their proposal became known as the Houston Plan, and it generated headlines when exposed by Senate investigators three years later. But Houston was not its intellectual author. 
A young attorney, Houston was an Indiana political activist who had worked in the White House for little more than a year. He was not the source for the detailed counterintelligence information that filled his memoranda. Houston was schooled by the two men whose policy positions he shared and articulated. If the proposal had been named for its intellectual authors, the Houston plan would have been called the Sullivan-Angleton plan. The germination of the Houston plan went back to Nixon's vision for the CIA. He saw the agency as an adjunct to the presidency, an instrument of White House power. He expected the agency to serve. As chief executive, Nixon preferred to insulate himself from cabinet officers and officials by sending his orders through his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, and White House counsel, John Ehrlichman. They, in turn, used their assistance to deliver Nixon's commands to the offices of the government. In the summer of 1969, Houston, who worked for Ehrlichman, called on Sullivan at FBI headquarters. He told him that the president was dissatisfied with the work of the Bureau, particularly in regard to anti-war militants. Who was watching them? Who was reporting on their foreign contacts? Sullivan had no good answers and blamed the problem on his boss. In a fit of pique, J. Edgar Hoover ended the FBI's contacts with the CIA. I want direct liaison here with CIA to be terminated and any contact with CIA in the future to be by letter only, Hoover wrote in a furious memo. The consequences of Hoover's stubbornness were nothing short of catastrophic, Sullivan told Houston. The barriers that Hoover had erected between the FBI and other intelligence agencies had led to a condition of total isolation of each organization, he said. Angleton and Sullivan plied Houston with the best data in the Lingual Hunter and Chaos files. The letters of Kathy Budin, a member of the Weather Underground who was still at large. Reports on the travels of Eldridge Cleaver, Minister of Information for the Black Panthers, and the finances of the Institute for Policy Studies, a leftist think tank in Washington. Houston fashioned this intelligence into several memos for White House staff, which evolved into the plan that would bear his name. After the explosion on 11th Street and the disorder on college campuses, Nixon's conservative soul was tormented by America's upheavals, the vicious bombings, the unruly long hairs, the Negroes out of control, and a permissive liberal elite excusing it all. On June 4, 1970, Nixon summoned the four highest-ranking intelligence directors in the U.S. government, Hoover for the FBI, Helms of the CIA, Lieutenant General Don Bennett of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and Vice Admiral Noel Gaylor, Director of the National Security Agency. These men commanded budgets in the billions and had thousands of subordinates. Nixon lectured them like school children. We are now confronted by a new and grave crisis in our country, one which we know too little about, he said. Certainly hundreds, perhaps thousands of Americans are determined to destroy our society. They are reaching out for the support, ideological or otherwise, of foreign powers, and they are developing their own brand of indigenous revolutionary activism, which is as dangerous as anything they could import from Cuba, China, or the Soviet Union. I do not intend to sit idly by, Nixon growled, while self-appointed revolutionaries commit acts of terrorism throughout the land. He demanded an intensified domestic intelligence collection effort, beginning with the Houston plan. He ordered Helms to appoint a subcommittee with an urgent task. I want to have a full range of options for dramatically expanding our domestic intelligence collection efforts. Angleton, wreathed in the usual haze of cigarette smoke, seized the moment to identify himself with Houston. 
There was no question in my mind, nor in the minds of others, that he, Houston, represented the commander-in-chief in terms of bringing together this plan, Angleton said. He said he was ready to practically drop everything in order to resolve the conflicts that had grown specifically between the CIA and FBI. The Houston plan offered Nixon a full range of options, but there was one delicate issue— Angleton and Helms had never told President Nixon about the agency's long-standing mail-opening program, Lingual, or about Hunter, which fed selected correspondence to the FBI. So Angleton wrote a clever lie into the Houston plan. He told Houston that the CIA had once had a mail-opening program, but had shut it down in the face of controversy. The recent emergence of the Weather Underground and other violent groups required reactivization of the program, he said. The plan went to Nixon, who approved of the particulars. The president agreed to lifting existing legal restrictions on domestic intelligence collection. He approved the expansion of NSA operations involving warrantless surveillance of Americans' phone calls and telegrams. He approved of more FBI black bag jobs. He agreed to expand the existing chaos coverage of the anti-war movement. And he reinstated the CIA's authority to open the mail of Americans. Sullivan and Angleton had prevailed. The plan bolstered Sullivan's position at the FBI and enhanced Angleton's influence over domestic CIA spying operations. They would be the senior representatives on a new intelligence evaluation committee in the White House, which sought to stem the tide of violence and subversion. On July 9, 1970, the U.S. intelligence chiefs endorsed the president's directive. The Houston plan became U.S. policy— Angleton, not Hoover, now controlled domestic counterintelligence. The Houston plan started fast and faltered faster. Angleton and Sullivan, it turned out, had laid their plans well in all ways but one. No one had thought to inform John Mitchell, the attorney general. The chief law enforcement officer in the United States knew nothing about the decision to abandon previous legal restrictions on spying on Americans and nothing about the creation of the Intelligence Evaluation Committee. Mitchell was appalled. He was no civil libertarian. He was a grumpy, pipe-smoking Wall Street lawyer who specialized in bond issues. He had little tolerance for political adventurism and less for legal improvisation. As Nixon's campaign manager, he worried about the repercussions if such a plan were exposed before the 1972 election. Mitchell asked to meet with Hoover. Without the blessing of the attorney general, the FBI director suddenly felt vulnerable, too. Hoover told Mitchell he would deploy his men on the expanded domestic counterintelligence mission only with written authorization from the president. Mitchell told Nixon not to sign any such authorization. Hoover replied that the FBI would no longer participate. Nixon did not want to fight with his FBI director or his campaign manager, so he folded. On July 27, 1970, he issued a memo killing the whole arrangement. The Houston plan, so skillfully advanced by Angleton and Sullivan, was dead. Angleton was undaunted. In his memo, President Nixon had rescinded the reactivization of the mail-opening program, which meant that Lingual no longer had presidential approval. As an officer of the CIA, Angleton was obliged to follow the orders of the commander-in-chief. He chose not to. The program yielded 8,000 letters a year, a bounty that Angleton could read at his leisure, a guide to the inner thoughts and plans of radicals, senators, and communist sympathizers around the world. The counterintelligence chief would not surrender such a bounty, not even under written orders from the president. 
he assumed no one would ever learn of his decision. As George Kisevalter said, Angleton had a bit of Iago in him. Like the Shakespearean counselor, he lived by his own creed. What Iago said, Angleton lived. But I will wear my heart upon my sleeve, for Dawes to peck at, I am not what I am. Golem In the summer of 1969, Angleton took a new friend out to lunch for the first time. His name was Yitzhak Rabin, former general staff chief of the Israeli Defense Forces and now Israel's new ambassador to Washington. They met at Reeve Ghosh Restaurant in Georgetown, Angleton's latest favorite dining venue. Angleton was proud to be seen with him. He knew the homely Rabin far more than the telegenic Moshe Dayan was the real architect of Israel's victory in the Six-Day War. With Nixon in the White House, Angleton basked in the mood of improved relations between the governments of the United States and Israel. In September 1969, Prime Minister Golda Meir came to Washington to meet President Nixon, and a new strategic relationship was consecrated. Israel was not just another Middle East country— it was a U.S. ally, like England or France. Jim saw this as a wonderful development that should have happened a long, long time ago, said Ephraim Halevi, now chief of the Mossad station in Washington, who accompanied Rabin on what became a monthly lunch appointment. Rabin's English was not fluent, so he relied heavily on Halevi for interpreting and keeping notes. When Rabin returned to the diplomatic party circuit, Angleton cultivated the younger man as a source and a friend. Angleton's family had found new lives. In 1970, Sicily, Truffy, and Lucy became disciples of Yogi Bhajan, the Indian spiritual leader who introduced Kundalini Yoga and Sikhism to America. I was 11 when I saw Yogi Bhajan give a lecture in Tucson, Lucy Angleton later told the journalist. I had no attention span, but for the first time in my life, I paid attention. In their new Sikh faith, Angleton's daughters abandoned the names that Jim and Cicely had given them. Lucy changed her name to Siri Hari Angleton Khalsa. Truffy became Guru Sangat Kar Khalsa. Angleton was more alone than ever. He needed comfort and company, and Halevi was glad to oblige. There were weeks in which I met him four or five times a week, Halevi recalls. There were times he came to my house regularly at ten o'clock at night and left me around five in the morning after polishing off a bottle of Jack Daniel's Black Label. There were times when I used to have lunch with him beginning at 12.30, and we were still at the restaurant at 6.30, and sometimes that very evening he came again. For Halevi, Angleton was a mentor. Jim was a man who understood, in my view, more than anybody else, the true nature of this ongoing battle of espionage and counterespionage, he said. He had no illusions. When Rabin became prime minister, Angleton ran into him at an embassy function in Washington. The event was attended by hundreds of people, but Rabin dropped all protocol. He dismissed his bodyguards and pulled up a chair to talk confidentially with Angleton. The crowd kept a respectful distance as the two men of power chatted. The bystanders, Angleton later joked, could only wonder, who was the goy and who was the golem? Angleton, of course, was the goy, the non-Jew. So perhaps Rabin was the golem, or was it the other way around? In Jewish folklore, the golem is a body without a soul, an inanimate being who is summoned to life by magic. In some tales, the golem protects the Jews from their tormentors. In others, he runs wild and terrifies the innocent. 
Angleton was both Goy and Golem. Ghoul At his personal best, Angleton was a kindly and avuncular man, an original thinker and a thoughtful friend. He was godfather to Quentin Meyer, Cordmeyer's oldest son, who suffered mental health issues after his mother's murder and his tour of duty in Vietnam. Angleton contributed one of his trademark black Homburgs to the hat collection of Ted Jessup, the teenage son of Tel Aviv station chief Peter Jessup. Another college-age friend recalled Angleton giving him the I Ching, the collection of classical Chinese divinatory writings which enjoyed a revival in the 60s counterculture. Yet he was also damaged. In his work, he was driven by an all-consuming sense of duty, lubricated by martinis, and suffused with suppressed rage at Philby's betrayal. He was obsessed with his theories and enthralled by his means of surveillance. He read the letters of the weathermen to their Moscow contacts. He knew about the latest trip of the Black Panthers to North Korea, where they could expect training in sabotage and intelligence collection. He could get access to chaos informant reports. He had a special file of the correspondence of Senators Church and Kennedy. All of these secrets crowded the inbox on his desk. With America's enemies emboldened everywhere, he felt he had to guard against them all. And the damned questions about the assassination of JFK would not go away. Angleton's problem was not the theories multiplying on U.S. college campuses as bootleg copies of Abraham Zapruder's film began to circulate. He worried about official efforts to reopen the JFK investigation. When he read a news report in January 1969 that Jim Garrison had created a new national committee to investigate the assassination, Angleton ordered his deputy, Jim Hunt, to pass a memo to Sam Papich asking the FBI to investigate its members. Under orders from Hoover, Papich was forbidden from meeting Angleton in person. Angleton informed the FBI that attorney Bernard Fensterwald had said the committee's purpose was to embarrass or force the government to make investigations they have been putting off since November 22, 1963. Angleton wanted to make sure that didn't happen. Any reinvestigation of JFK's murder was sure to revisit the question of what the CIA knew about Oswald before the assassination, not something he cared to discuss. Most ominously, one suggestion that the government investigate further originated with the government itself— in September 1969, Angleton received a detailed report from the State Department, written by Charles Thomas, the earnest foreign service officer who had previously reported conversations with several Mexicans who recalled meeting Oswald in September 1963. Thomas had collected credible evidence that Oswald had some kind of relationship with Sylvia Duran, the receptionist in the Cuban consulate in Mexico City, who was known to the CIA for her good looks and communist sympathies. Thomas felt obliged to report again what he knew, assuming the FBI or the CIA would want to know more about Oswald's Cuban contacts. The FBI wasn't interested, so the State Department referred Thomas's report to Angleton. Angleton had more than enough reason to act. Thomas was a capable Foreign Service officer. If Oswald had had some kind of relationship with Duran, then presumptively he had some connection to Cuban intelligence. The accumulating evidence again begged an obvious question. Had Castro, knowing the CIA was out to kill him, deployed Oswald to assassinate Kennedy first? If Angleton was serious about investigating the possible involvement of a hostile foreign power in JFK's murder, 
He now had credible evidence and ample opportunity. He wasn't interested. He sent the State Department a note acknowledging receipt of Thomas's information and said he saw no need for further action. Goy or Golem? Mangleton was a ghoul, a specter who showed up around the time of death. On April 12, 1971, Charles Thomas committed suicide at his home in suburban Washington. In a second-floor bathroom, he shot himself with a gun he had bought in Cuba years before. Thomas was despondent because he felt that his foreign service career had been cut short. He blamed himself for pursuing the Oswald story too aggressively. Angleton was making plans to go to Mexico City to see Wynne Scott, who had retired as station chief. Angleton had been disturbed to learn that Scott, emulating Philby, was planning to publish a memoir about his life as a spy. He obtained a copy of the manuscript Scott was planning to publish. In 220 typed pages, Scott recalled his career at the agency, and he was not discreet. He alluded to Philby, whom he had known well in London, but Philby was not the problem. For Angleton, the problem was Scott's appalling chapter on JFK's assassination. Scott's account of Lee Harvey Oswald's visit to Mexico City flatly contradicted the Warren Commission's report and the CIA on a key issue, Oswald's Cuban contacts. Angleton had to handle Scott with care. Scott was one of the original OSS men who built the CIA. In Mexico City, he had earned a reputation as possibly the best station chief in the world. Two years before, Helms had bestowed on Scott the agency's highest honor, the Distinguished Intelligence Medal. Persuading him not to publish his book was not going to be easy. Then, Wynne Scott dropped dead. Widow On the afternoon of April 28, 1971, Angleton knocked on the door of the modern split-level house at 16 Rio Escondido in Mexico City. He was accompanied by another CIA man. The door opened, framing the figure of a brown-haired woman with grim eyes and pursed lips. Jane Scott had been a widow for barely 48 hours. She recognized Angleton. Like many CIA wives, she loathed him. Why did it take so long, she said, all sarcasm and turning heels, the vultures had arrived. Angleton expressed to Jane Scott the condolences of Dick Helms and the entire agency. He mentioned, briefly and generally, the benefits to which she was entitled, adding that our current information is tentative. He wanted to make sure she consulted with the legal counsel's office so that she would obtain every advantage for herself and her children. Jane Scott had worked for the agency. She understood the language of Langley. Do what we say, or else we'll cut off your pension. Did Wynne have a will? Angleton asked. I don't know, she said. I don't even know who Scotty's lawyer or executor is. Could you find out? He nodded at the man trailing him and let John know. The man with him, John Horton, was the current station chief in Mexico City. God, how I hate him, Janet Scott thought, according to her son, it would have killed her husband to see Jim Angleton in his house, in his living room, calling with condolences while seeking to confiscate his memoir. Her husband had died at the breakfast table two days before, the victim of a heart attack. Earlier in the week, Scotty had shown up one morning, his face covered with bruises and scratches. He said he had fallen off a wall in the garden, but no one had seen him fall. The bruises were so unsightly, she closed the casket at his wake. 
Some of Wynne Scott's associates suspected foul play in his death. One of Scott's most trusted agents, George Monroe, told his son, They finally got Wynne, without betraying whom he thought they might be. Tom Mann, the former ambassador in Mexico City, wondered if Scott had been murdered. Janet Scott expressed no such thoughts. She had to worry about her five children and her house and her suddenly uncertain future. Angleton took her into a side room. I have an unpleasant task, he began. There are some papers. If these are published, this violates Wynne's oath of secrecy. We want to recover all of them. The widow feared this ghoul. Angleton looked like a man whose ectoplasm had run out. I knew something was wrong when he told me he was going to see Helms, Janet said. Why do you think he wrote it? That was not a question Angleton was going to answer. Janet Scott would later tell one of her sons that Angleton was a drunken idiot. She underestimated him. He knew what he was doing. He was excising Scott's informed opinion about JFK's assassination from the historical record. He was obstructing justice in the case of the murdered president. Again. John Horton returned to 16 Rio Escondido the next day. He spent several hours behind the locked door of Wynne Scott's study. I was amazed at what I found, Horton wrote in a memo. Scott's office was a mine of precious intelligence, stacks of secret files, as well as tapes and photos of Oswald and several copies of the unpublished memoir. When no one was looking, Horton lugged three large cartons and four suitcases to an unmarked truck parked at the curb. The packages were shipped by plane back to Angleton's office. We have retrieved all papers or will soon have done so, Horton wrote to Langley. He referred to Angleton by his cryptonym, Hugh Ashmead, and to Janet Scott by Winscott's cryptonym, Willard Curtis. I think worst has been avoided through Ashmead's persuasiveness and Mrs. Curtis's good spirit, Horton said. Winscott had written his memoir in self-defense. He had read the JFK conspiracy theories and the wild claims of people who knew a lot less about the subject than he did. He wanted to establish some facts— he especially objected to the Warren Report's assertion on page 777 that Oswald's visit to the Cuban consulate was not known until after the assassination. The passage implied his station had missed something basic and important about the enemy, an American visitor to the Cuban consulate. Scott knew better. He wrote, Every piece of information concerning Lee Harvey Oswald was reported immediately after it was received to U.S. Ambassador Thomas C. Mann by memorandum, the FBI chief in Mexico by memorandum, and to my headquarters by cable, and included in each and every one of these reports was the entire conversation Oswald had from Cuban consulate with the Soviet embassy. And Scott had the tapes of Oswald's phone calls to prove his point— Scott wrote to distance himself from the CIA's misrepresentations to the Warren Commission. Helms and Angleton might have some explaining to do about Oswald. He did not. Scott did not live to testify about CIA operations and the accused assassin. His chapter on Oswald would not be declassified for thirty years. Angleton had buried his former friend. Helms on the morning of June 19, 1972, Dick Helms held the usual Monday staff meeting at CIA headquarters. His demeanor was calm, his tone offhand. Over the weekend, the Washington Post had reported that two former agency employees, 
James McCourt and Eugenio Martinez had been among five men arrested for breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the Watergate office complex in Foggy Bottom. Most everybody in the meeting knew the names, Angleton included. McCord had retired from a 20-year career in the Office of Security. He had been cleaning up the agency's dirty work since the fall of Frank Olson in 1953. Martinez had served in the Bay of Pigs operation and still reported to the Wave Station in Miami. Making matters worse, veteran officer Howard Hunt had also been implicated in the burglary. Hunt had made a name for himself in Guatemala in 1954 and the Bay of Pigs in 1961. We're going to catch a lot of hell because these are formers, Helms said, referring to former CIA employees. And we knew they were working for the White House. That was a frank admission, noted Bill Colby, former chief of the Far East Division and soon to become the CIA's executive director. Colby had distinguished himself in the OSS. After serving in Italy in the 1950s, he moved on to South Vietnam. He now held the new position of executive director, ranking just below the director and deputy director. Angleton expressed a fear that the press might blame the CIA for the botched burglary. Photographs of Howard Hunt were passed around. Angleton claimed not to recognize him. I'd never seen him before in my life, he said. That may not have been true. Hunt said he knew Angleton. When Hunt was serving as station chief in Uruguay in the 1950s, the two men once had an angry confrontation over control of an FBI informant, he said. Angleton and Hunt also once met in room 16 of the old executive office building next to the White House, according to a Watergate grand jury witness. Under oath, Angleton said he did not know Hunt and had never been in room 16. Angleton certainly knew who Jim McCord was. The arrest of the veteran office of security man was a hell of a problem for Helms. And Angleton knew that if the DCI had a problem, he had a problem too. Angleton's career cannot be understood without reference to Richard McGarrah Helms, his friend and enabler. They had first met in London during the war inspired by the can-do example of the British and intrigued by the profession of secret intelligence, they had found their mission in life. They had worked together for a generation, seen their children born, grow up, and go away. Yet Dick Helms and Jim Angleton were not the best of friends. In the 1950s, Helms and his wife Julia invited Jim and Cicely to play charades at their annual New Year's Eve party, but they didn't often visit each other in their homes. Their social styles were different— Angleton was an intellectual, a man of ideas, Helms a Mandarin, a man of power. They admired each other and went their own ways. Helms's problem in the summer of 1972 was that he had never won the confidence of Richard Nixon the way he won the confidence of Lyndon Johnson. It wasn't for lack of trying. Helms sent many a flattering letter to Nixon. In the few meetings where Helms was actually in the same room as the president, the CIA director invariably found cause to praise Nixon for his exemplary statesmanship. The Watergate burglary tested their wary relationship. As far as Nixon was concerned, the men arrested were CIA employees. They had come recommended by Helms. He expected Helms to call off the FBI's investigation. That was the sort of thing a CIA director was supposed to do for his commander-in-chief. Helms balked. As far as he was concerned, the agency had no connection to the burglary, only past relationships with its perpetrators, which he insisted were irrelevant to the FBI investigation. Nixon didn't want to hear it. 
On June 23rd, Nixon instructed his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, to call in Helms and give him the order. Nixon's temper was boiling. We protected Helms from one hell of a lot of things, he growled. You open the scab, there's a hell of a lot of things, and that we just feel that it would be very detrimental to have this thing go any further. Nixon wanted Haldeman to convey a very specific message. When you get these people in, he instructed, meaning Helms, say, look, the problem is that this will open up the whole Bay of Pigs thing, and the president just feels that, um, without going into the detail, don't, don't lie to them to the extent to say there is no involvement, but just say this is sort of a comedy of errors, bizarre, without getting into it. The president believes that this is going to open the whole Bay of Pigs thing up again. When Haldeman sat the CIA chief down in his office later that day and delivered the president's veiled threat about the whole Bay of Pigs thing, the usually composed Helms rose out of his chair. The Bay of Pigs hasn't got a damned thing to do with this, he shouted. Helms felt threatened. According to Haldeman, the whole Bay of Pigs thing was Nixon's way of referring to the CIA's unspeakable secret, the assassination of JFK. Whatever the specifics of Nixon's veiled language, his purpose was evident. Nixon conveyed a desire to touch a sore spot, said two CIA historians, to apply pressure. Angleton was diligent in his service to Helms. He retained considerable powers thanks to the director. Operation Chaos remained robust under Dick Ober's leadership. His special operations group now had 40 employees and utilized another 130 agent sources, by 1972, chaos accounted for more than 20% of the counterintelligence staff. The agency's analysts had repeatedly concluded that the anti-war movement was not funded or controlled or even much influenced by any foreign power. That did not affect the program's growth. Angleton still guarded the lingual program. Unbeknownst to Nixon, the mail-opening program continued in full force. Per Angleton's standing orders, the counterintelligence staff shared with the FBI the personal information culled from the international mail of Americans suspected of no crime. The Bureau's co-intel pro-operatives continued to use Angleton's information to harass, disrupt, deceive, and discredit people and organizations opposed to the policies of the U.S. government. The targets were black nationalist groups, including the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Black Panthers, and pacifist organizations such as the Women's Strike for Peace in the American Friends Service Committee. Angleton had lost sway in the Soviet-Russia division with the release of Yuri Nasenko in early 1969. His warnings about a KGB mole were ignored. His dream of an expanded domestic counterintelligence program had been thwarted by the collapse of the Houston plan, and his friend Dick Helms was about to get fired. On November 7, 1972, Richard Nixon was re-elected as president, winning 49 of the 50 states with the largest popular vote in American history. For a man who had been scorned by many during his rise to power, he was not magnanimous in victory. Nixon wanted to remake his second administration with a free hand. He asked for the resignation of his entire cabinet, prompting a round of critical headlines, suggesting he was acting undemocratically. Nixon informed Helms that he wanted to appoint a new CIA director, what ensued was a delicate negotiation, pregnant with unstated meaning. Senator Howard Baker had observed the tension between the two men. Nixon and Helms have so much on each other, he said. Neither of them can breathe. 
Helms did not want to leave public service under the taint of Watergate. He said he wanted to stay on through his 60th birthday, a few months hence. Nixon suggested an ambassadorship. The president mentioned Iran, and Helms said he would consider it. Within the week, Nixon had reneged on the deal. He surprised Helms by announcing the appointment of James Schlesinger, the chief of the Office of Management and Budget as the next director of Central Intelligence. Helms quickly cleaned out his office, shredding all files related to MK Ultra and destroying tapes of his phone conversations. The CIA's farewell ceremony for Helms in February 1973 was an emotional event. When Helms left the building, all the troops jammed the headquarters entrance for his departure, said his assistant, Sam Halpern. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. Everyone knew we were in for a bad time after that, especially Angleton. Colby The mutual dislike of Jim Angleton and Bill Colby was no secret or surprise to colleagues who knew both of them. Their differences had flared throughout the course of their intertwined careers. In Italy in the 1950s, they clashed over the wisdom of the CIA's funding of an opening to the left. In Vietnam, they differed on the need for special counterintelligence units. At home, they disagreed about the value of Operation Chaos and Lingual. Colby distrusted Angleton's methods and mentality. Angleton did not care for Colby's actions, tone, or style. In one sense, theirs was a professional struggle. Each man was doing what he thought his job required. Colby was a paratrooper, a paramilitary man, a covert operator. He wanted the CIA to focus on running spies and stealing secrets. Angleton was a literary critic, an analyst, a counterintelligence officer. He was looking for double agents, disinformation, and penetration operations. But the antagonism between them flowed from deeper sources, ones that were both personal and political. Angleton came of age in Italy in the 1930s when fascism was popular and attractive. In the eyes of his friend Ezra Pound, Benito Mussolini was not a strutting dictator. He was positively Jeffersonian. As a young man, at least, Angleton had admired the fascist ideal of a strong cooperative state with some communal ownership of property and a leading role for the church. After the war, he treated fascist allies with care. On election day, he tended to vote Republican. Intellectually, he was secular, anti-communist, and Zionist. Colby was the son of an army officer. He spent his boyhood on military bases, absorbing the democratic esprit of the mess hall and the barracks, it was a point of family pride that Colby's grandfather, also an army officer, had gotten into trouble for writing an article denouncing the unjust acquittal of a white military officer who murdered a black soldier. Colby came of age supporting the Republicans of Spain, not Wall Street. Politically, he was progressive. Intellectually, he was a liberal Catholic. If Angleton was a poet spy, Colby was a soldier priest. Angleton thought Colby was a naïve, Colby thought Angleton a reactionary. Ultimately, Angleton was a creative theorist, Colby a disciplined moralist, and that made the difference in who would lose his job first. People had a tendency to underrate Colby. He was slight of build, modest in his manner. Angleton's Israeli friends thought him an unworthy adversary. They saw Angleton as a man of imagination, of history, said Ted Jessup, son of former Tel Aviv station chief Peter Jessup, who heard his father's conversations with top Mossad officers. They thought Colby was some clerk. Colby's advantage was that he had common sense. He understood that the post-war world in which the CIA was born had passed. 
The agency had to absorb the new realities in America. The anti-war movement, which many CIA wives and children supported, was not the product of a communist conspiracy, even if the movement heartened the Soviet Union and its allies. The animosity between China and the Soviet Union was real, not the sham that Angleton still argued it was. Even Nixon, impeccably anti-communist, had gone to Moscow and Beijing to inaugurate a new spirit of superpower relations called détente. Colby tested Angleton's theories against known realities. He said he sat through several long sessions with Angleton, doing my best to follow his tortuous theories about the long arm of a powerful and wily KGB at work over decades. I confessed that I couldn't absorb it, Colby said possibly because I didn't have the requisite grasp of this labyrinthine subject, possibly because Angleton's explanations were impossible to follow, or possibly because the evidence just didn't add up to his conclusions. At the same time, I looked in vain for some tangible results in the counterintelligence files and found little or none. President Nixon's government was falling apart. After being sworn in for his second term in January 1973, Nixon had never seemed more potent. His opening of diplomatic relations with China and his policy of detente toward the Soviet Union surprised and disarmed liberal critics who had long denounced him as a shrill and dogmatic anti-communist. The anti-war movement that had once plagued him was dying out, thanks to his abolition of the draft. In January 1973, he directed Secretary of State Henry Kissinger to sign the Paris Peace Accords, which promised the war-weary country a plausible plan to finally extricate U.S. troops from Vietnam. At the same time, Nixon was undermined by the almost daily revelations generated by the investigations of the Watergate burglary, which revealed the burglars worked for the White House. Political reporters, most of them liberals, were appalled by Nixon's lawlessness. With the help of leaks from the FBI and Justice Department, they forged a stream of news stories in the pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times and in the news broadcasts of the three television networks. They depicted a pattern of perjury and obstruction of justice leading toward the Oval Office. In April 1973, Nixon's chief of staff, Haldeman, and his chief advisor, John Ehrlichman, had no choice but to resign. The CIA men faced a new challenge— Helms was gone, and his artful evasions no longer kept Washington reporters at bay concerning the CIA's support for the burglars. On April 27, 1973, the Department of Justice made an extraordinary disclosure to the judge presiding at the trial of Daniel Ellsberg. A former national security consultant, Ellsberg had been charged under the Espionage Act for leaking the top-secret Pentagon Papers to the New York Times— the government revealed that former CIA officer Howard Hunt, on trial for his role in the Watergate burglary, had also burglarized the offices of Ellsberg's psychiatrist at the behest of the Nixon White House, and he had used equipment and papers supplied by the CIA. The judge dismissed all charges against Ellsberg, citing egregious governmental misconduct. Ellsberg, who had faced 40 years in prison, walked out of the courtroom to claim vindication in front of the TV cameras. America had a new kind of hero, and the CIA had a new kind of notoriety. The new director, James Schlesinger, was startled by the revelation. The agency had furnished Hunt with a camera, disguise materials, and false identification. With another such disclosure, Schlesinger might have feared he would find himself out of a job. In self-defense, he sought to preempt any further revelations. 
he ordered all senior operating officials of this agency to report to me immediately any activities now going on or that have gone on in the past which might be construed to be outside the legislative charter of this agency. He ordered Bill Colby to oversee the preparation of a report of the testimony of those who came forward. And so Angleton's nemesis inherited the stack of secrets that would become known as the Family Jewels. The phrase, Ivy League slang for testicles, evoked the agency's aristocratic code, its masculine ethos, and the locus of its vulnerability. The Family Jewels were especially threatening to Angleton, because many of the complaints from the ranks of the CIA focused on the propriety of two programs in which he played a leading role, namely chaos and lingual. And then Bill Colby got the top job in Langley. Nixon suddenly decided he wanted James Schlesinger to ride herd on the Pentagon and named him Secretary of Defense. Almost as an afterthought, Nixon appointed Colby as the eighth director of the CIA. Angleton was in trouble. Colby had an Ivy League and OSS pedigree similar to Angleton's, but a very different vision of the future. Colby was tested in the summer of 1973 when the story of the Houston plan was discovered and exposed by the Senate Watergate Committee. The investigators were appalled at the scope of Nixon's domestic surveillance plan and the support it had gained from the CIA and other agencies. The fact that J. Edgar Hoover, of all people, had killed the domestic spying plan only highlighted how out of control the Nixon administration seemed. Colby thought the CIA had to do a better job of explaining its actions. At his confirmation hearings in July 1973, Colby said the agency had to function within American society and the American constitutional structure, and I can see that there may be a requirement to expose to the American people a great deal more than might be convenient from the narrow intelligence point of view. Colby harbored a profound certainty that there must be a new CIA that would be much more forthcoming in its relationship with Congress and the American public. Such proclamations helped placate a Congress and public disillusioned about the CIA's actions with regard to Vietnam and Watergate. They were ominous for Angleton. Angleton was ill-prepared to resist Colby's war of attrition. His father had died in March 1973 in a hospital in Boise. James Hugh Angleton was 84 years old. Angleton sometimes had let his father down. He had disappointed him by choosing a CIA career over the family business, and he never talked to his father about his working life. The services were held at the Cathedral of the Rockies in Boise. His mother, now 74, was living in Idaho. So was his brother, Hugh, still running his antique emporium. His sister, Dolores Guarneri, came from Florence with her Italian husband, Carmen from Milan with her husband. Colonel Angleton was a decorated man, the eulogists reminded the assembled mourners. He was a mason and a member of the Methodist Church. He was president emeritus of the American Chamber of Commerce for Italy, a veteran of the OSS, and recipient of an Italian military star for valor in the field of combat. Unspoken at the service was that the deceased was also the father of one of the most powerful men in the Central Intelligence Agency. Even among the many friends and family of the late Hugh Angleton, not many knew of that distinction. With his father dead and his family gone, Angleton had never been more alone in his pain. He took to wearing his father's suits. Angleton had few allies left in Langley. Tom Karamasinis had retired with Helms. Cord Meyer was in London. 
With the exception of David Phillips, chief of the Western Hemisphere Division, all of the agency's current division chiefs disliked or mistrusted him. Among those who had worked with Angleton, he had a terrible reputation, even for his counterintelligence work. Jim virtually destroyed counterintelligence at CIA, said Carter Woodbury, a retired officer. In a letter to a colleague, Woodbury said that when he joined the CIA in 1950, every division and every station had a strong counterintelligence component. Two decades later, there were almost no such components, he wrote. They had atrophied over the years as Jim focused more and more on his personal and mythical CIA preoccupations. Jack Morey, former Athens station chief who served as the agency's liaison to Congress, described Angleton's search for moles in the Soviet Russia division as debilitating sick think. Bill Colby heard many such complaints. An audit of Soviet Russia division officers in 1973-1974 found that a disturbing proportion of them did nothing more than check out Soviet penetrations suspected by Golitsyn and Angleton. Colby concluded Angleton's never-ending mole hunt was seriously damaging the recruiting of Soviet officers and hurting CIA's intelligence take. Because of this, we have virtually no positive ops going against our primary targets, the USSR and Soviet officers, Colby wrote in a memo. Colby suspected Lingual, saying the mail-opening operation was legally questionable and operationally trivial, having never produced much beyond vague generalities. In August 1973, he limited chaos activities to a passive collection of information upon FBI request. I hoped Angleton might take the hint and retire in time to secure certain retirement benefits which closed in June 1974, Colby explained, but he dug in his heels and marshaled every argument he could think of to urge that such an important contact not be handled in the normal bureaucratic machinery. Angleton worried that Colby was destroying U.S. counterintelligence. Colby worried Angleton was destroying himself. Angleton was getting to the point where he had some difficulty separating reality from fiction, said Robert Gambino of the Office of the Security, I had personal information and personal experience with Angleton during his latter days. He was slipping off the edge. I don't want to suggest he was, you know, that he was having serious mental problems or anything like that. Let me just say, I think it was time for him to go. On Saturday, October 6, 1973, as Israeli Jews observed Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Egyptian army launched a massive surprise attack across the Sinai Desert, retribution for the surprise Israeli attack of June 1967. The Egyptian invasion penetrated deep into Israeli territory and inflicted unprecedented losses on the unprepared Israeli defense forces. We were very close to disaster, recalled Ephraim Halevi. After the first week, we lost a third of our air force and close to a third of our tanks. We had over 2,000 dead and 10,000 injured. I remember those days vividly because I was there when the U.S. was groping to find out how much damage Israel had suffered. Over the course of the next three weeks, the United States resupplied Israel while President Nixon managed a geopolitical crisis. As the IDF regained its lost territory, the Soviet Union threatened to protect its ally Egypt from another humiliation with nuclear weapons if necessary. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger demanded the Israelis accept a ceasefire, which they reluctantly did. President Nixon found the CIA's performance unacceptable. 
The agency had not alerted the White House that another war in the Middle East might be in the offing, much less that it would lead to a nuclear confrontation with the Soviet Union. It was a classic case of getting too close to a source. Robert Morris, a staffer at the National Security Council, said the worst common flaw in the reading of the intelligence was an abiding cultural, perhaps racial, contempt in Washington and Jerusalem for the political posturing and fighting skills of the Arabs. Kissinger diagnosed the CIA's problem with asperity. The U.S. definition of rationality did not take seriously the notion of the Arabs starting an unwinnable war to restore self-respect, he fumed. There was no defense against our own preconceptions or those of our allies. As the CIA's most faithful messenger of Israeli thinking, Angleton had contributed to the fiasco. Worse yet, he had made an enemy of Kissinger, the most powerful man in government after Nixon. Angleton's continuing obsession with Soviet deception operations did not help his credibility. His claim that British Prime Minister Harold Wilson was a KGB agent of influence was baseless. Yet Len McCoy heard Angleton make the point at length in a speech to senior CIA officers in March 1974. What he said was that Wilson was a Soviet agent, McCoy recalled, that control of Wilson was exercised by a senior KGB officer or officers, and that this relationship went back to the time when he was traveling in and out of the Soviet Union on personal assignment. The CIA never found any evidence to support Angleton's theory. McCoy thought Angleton's mindset fit the definition of paranoia. He was incapable of distinguishing what was possible from what was probable. Yet McCoy did not challenge him. One was a bit cowed in the man's presence, he admitted. And then an obnoxious newspaper reporter gave Bill Colby the opportunity he had been waiting for. Smoking Gun in the spring of 1974, the recurring banner headlines on the front page of the Washington Post that Angleton picked up on his doorstep told the tale of a White House besieged. President hands over transcripts, Nixon debating paying, blackmail, clemency. People went about their business in the Capitol with only three syllables on their lips. Watergate. The scandalous spectacle of White House aides charged in a court of law with diverse counts of conspiracy, perjury, and obstruction of justice preoccupied official Washington. Federal prosecutors and senior editors were pursuing a lawless chief executive who had just won the largest number of votes of any American president. The discovery of an audio taping system in the White House created a vast new body of evidence— Nixon said the tapes could not possibly be made public without damaging the presidency. The prosecutors insisted and the court agreed. Nixon had to produce the tapes for the trial of the Watergate defendants. The results were dispiriting to the Congress and the public. The vigilant editing of the transcripts could not disguise the constant cursing. The censor's euphemism, expletive deleted, entered the lexicon of a disillusioned nation. Angleton had other worries— he saw more important stories buried by the Watergate coverage. Willy Brandt resigns over spy scandal. Willy Brandt, chancellor of West Germany and leftist advocate of Kissinger-style détente, had quit after one of his closest aides, Gunter Guillaume, had been exposed as an East German spy. Guillaume was exactly the sort of long-term penetration agent that Angleton feared was working somewhere in Langley. 
It was time to expand the use of counterintelligence tools, said Angleton, not discard them. Angleton still had a vision, even as he was losing his empire. Whatever Nixon's abuses of power, he believed the country still needed more vigorous defense. Kissinger's pursuit of detente had only benefited the Soviet Union, he said. The surge of technological innovation that had lifted the United States and its allies, like Israel, to military ascendancy after World War II had been squandered. Beginning with JFK, he said, U.S. presidents and policymakers had traded the sound policy of containment of the Soviet Union for the illusory benefits of peaceful coexistence, in which the West relaxed its guard while the communists pursued class warfare ever more vigorously. He thought Harold Wilson's election and Willy Brandt's disgrace showed that détente did not modify Soviet strategy against the West. As for Vietnam, Angleton thought the United States had peace, but hardly with the honor Nixon and Kissinger claimed. The superior resources of the American fighting forces, and worse still, their spirit, had been wasted in Southeast Asia for want of a strategy calculated to stand and hold— Kissinger diplomacy has not deflected the Kremlin for its basic objectives, Angleton insisted. Detente is a sham, a tactic. It is Soviet communism's Potemkin village for waging Cold War. He was a visionary. He was a crank. He was a victim of his own mentality. Angleton, who had stunted or ended the careers of so many colleagues, suddenly found his own loyalties called into question— Unable to find a KGB spy anywhere in the agency, one of Angleton's mole hunters finally turned his attention on the counterintelligence chief himself. Claire Edward Petty, a career officer on the counterintelligence staff, concluded his boss was either a giant fraud or a KGB agent. Petty's methodology deserves the adjective Angletonian. Assuming the CIA had been penetrated at a high level, Petty considered the possibility that both Anatoly Golitsyn and Yuri Nosenko had been sent by the KGB under the guidance of the real mole, Angleton himself. Through this analytical lens, Petty saw new meaning in all the anomalies of Angleton's career, his strange indulgence of Philby, his promotion of Golitsyn, his irrational insistence that the Sino-Soviet split was a ruse, Every decision he made seemed to impede U.S. intelligence operations, Petty noted. Perhaps it was intentional. This was speculation as counterintelligence. Petty took a semi-plausible scenario based on a superficial fact pattern and used it to confirm a logical conclusion that flowed from untested assumptions. As Angleton's mole hunt culminated in absurdity, Nixon's presidency came to an end. It was no coincidence. The spymaster and the president embodied American Cold War policy from its ascendancy after World War II to its failure in Southeast Asia. Angleton and Nixon shared a determination verging on hatred to defeat their enemies. They shared a dogged belief in the necessity of domestic counterintelligence, what the liberal headline writers called spying on Americans. Their willingness to act on that belief, even when it conflicted with the law, ended their long public careers in the span of four months. Nixon's limited release of the transcripts of the White House tapes did not satisfy the Watergate special prosecutors or the courts. On July 24, 1974, the Supreme Court, by a unanimous vote, upheld the validity of the prosecutor's subpoena seeking additional tapes of 56 White House conversations 
including the phone calls in the immediate aftermath of the Watergate burglary. Their release brought another banner headline in the Post that had concussive effect on Washington. President admits withholding data. Tapes show he approved cover-up. The plan? Use CIA to block probe. The Post said the tapes proved that Nixon had ordered a cover-up of the Watergate burglary six days after it occurred. The June 23rd tape, in which Nixon invoked the whole Bay of Pigs thing, was a proverbial smoking gun, incontestable proof of Nixon's guilt. The end was near. As crowds gathered in vigils outside the White House, the last vestiges of support for Nixon vanished. The 11 Republicans on the Judiciary Committee who had just voted against articles of impeachment announced they would change their votes. Facing all but certain conviction by the Senate, the President had run out of options. In August, Nixon wrote a letter of resignation to Secretary of State Kissinger. He bade farewell to the White House staff in an emotional ceremony, then flew off to Southern California. Vice President Gerald Ford was sworn in as President before the end of the day. Seymour Hirsch didn't know much about James Angleton besides his name. Hirsch was a 37-year-old reporter for the New York Times. He had won the 1970 Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on how U.S. soldiers annihilated several hundred residents of a Vietnamese village in March 1968, raping the women, killing the children, and disemboweling both. His pitiless reporting seared the words, Me Lie, into the soft tissue of the American self-regard, and won him a job at America's newspaper of record. Hirsch was a genially abrasive man, a kvetcher, and a workaholic. He had no time for politics, only a nose for abuses of power. He exemplified a resurgent, morally confident, some said self-righteous brand of American journalism that, in a break with the past, dared to publish stories objectionable to senior officials in Washington. Hirsch was hearing from his sources that the CIA had spied on the anti-war movement, something his leftist friends insisted was endemic. People were telling him about Dick Ober's special operations group. They talked about how Tom Houston's plan had stoked CIA action against domestic radicals. They talked about how the mail of certain congressmen had been opened, all of which was true. These stories echoed or were based on the Family Jewels documents that Colby had compiled in May 1973. Many CIA hands objected to chaos, saying the agency was spying on their own wives and children. When Hirsch mentioned Angleton's name in his interviews, he heard expressions of fear and awe. He heard about the man's passion for orchids, his poetry magazine at Yale. He heard that he was an unrelenting cold warrior— that he was convinced that the Soviet Union was playing a major role in the anti-war protests, that his reports on the student movement had been forwarded to Nixon and Kissinger. When Hirsch called, Angleton did not hesitate to engage him. Hirsch asked if the counterintelligence staff had operated in the United States. Angleton denied it. We know our jurisdiction, he said. Hirsch called Colby, who confirmed the story in its broad outlines, while insisting he had put an end to Angleton's abuses. In December 1974, the reporter then put in a call to Ambassador Dick Helms in Tehran and left a blunt message. The Times, he said, was going to press within six hours with the story very damaging to Mr. Angleton. Angleton expected nothing good when Bill Colby asked to see him in his office. Twenty years of rivalry and resentment ended in a terse confrontation. 
I called Angleton to my office to talk the matter out with him, Colby wrote in his memoir, saying that I had come to the conclusion that a change was necessary in both jobs, the Israeli liaison and the counterintelligence, but that I wanted to retain his talents for the agency and especially his experience. I offered him the prospect of separate status, where he could summarize for us the main ideas he had and conclusions he had reached about counterintelligence, and where he would be consulted on but no longer in charge of our Israeli liaison. Angleton scoffed. The imperative of counterintelligence required that he stay on. Did Colby understand what the KGB was doing under the guise of detente? Colby pressed on without pity. He informed Angleton that the New York Times was about to publish an article linking him to domestic spying activities. He had no choice but to resign, Colby said. Otherwise, people might think that he had been fired because of the Times story. I asked him to think over the matter for a couple of days, to decide if he would like to stay on in the way I described, Colby recalled, or whether he would choose to retire completely. Checkmate. In one short conversation, Colby had maneuvered Angleton into choosing the method of his professional suicide. It was elegant. It was brutal. It had to be done. Colby took no pleasure in another man's pain, but, as an observant Catholic who attended services at the Little Flower Catholic Church in Bethesda, he was glad to have expiated the sins of the agency. Angleton shuffled out of the meeting, shocked and uncomprehending. An old friend from the FBI happened to be waiting in the outer office, Behind Angleton's horn-rimmed glasses, the usually sharp brown eyes were blurred with pain. The FBI man took him by the arm. Jesus, Jim, it can't be that bad, he said. What's the matter? It's horrible, Angleton rasped. It's awful. You'll soon read all about it. Desolate Huge CIA operation reported in U.S. against anti-war forces, other dissidents in Nixon years. Files on Citizens Helms reportedly got surveillance data in charter violation. The newspaper article that ended Jim Angleton's career packed a punch for Americans who actually believed they lived in a constitutional republic. Hirsch's article described a massive illegal domestic intelligence operation during the Nixon administration that maintained files on at least 10,000 Americans associated with the popular movements against the war in Vietnam. These files, the story said, were controlled by a special unit reporting to then-director Richard Helms. The agency had also collected evidence of dozens of other illegal activities by CIA personnel, including break-ins, wiretapping, and the surreptitious inspection of mail. Angleton was outraged and anguished. Helms sent a cable to the State Department denying there had been any illegal surveillance in the United States. Ben Bradley would later say he thought it was a hell of a story— but at the time, the Washington Post treated Hirsch's scoop with disdain. The Post's editorial page proclaimed, While almost any CIA activity can be fitted under the headline of spying, and while CIA activities undertaken on American soil can be called domestic spying, it remains to be determined which of these activities has been conducted in violation of the agency's congressional charter or are illegal. Subsequent investigations determined these activities and many more certainly violated the agency's charter and the law, though politics would preclude prosecution. While Hirsch made some errors, his story has withstood the test of time. His sources were well informed about the internal complaints about chaos as compiled in the family jewels. 
Hirsch's report was mistaken in attributing the program to President Nixon when it had actually begun under President Johnson. The story was perhaps unfair to Bill Colby. It might have emphasized more clearly that Colby had restricted some extra-legal operations when he became director in 1973. Citing his unnamed source, Colby, Hirsch attributed responsibility to one man. The CIA domestic activities during the Nixon administration were directed, the source said, by James Angleton, who was still in charge of the counterintelligence department, the agency's most powerful and mysterious unit. To be sure, Hirsch got the name wrong. Angleton headed the counterintelligence staff, not the counterintelligence department, but the agency's most powerful and mysterious unit was an apt description of Angleton's empire. Some would dispute that Angleton directed the spying on the anti-war movement, as Hirsch contended. Dick Ober had directed the day-to-day -day operations of chaos from 1967 to 1974. But Hirsch's attribution of ultimate responsibility to Angleton was not misplaced. Angleton had formal responsibility for all of the agency's counterintelligence operations. Helms had assigned Ober to the counterintelligence staff precisely because Angleton's skill in operations requiring extreme compartmentalization. According to Ober's deputy, anyone who wanted to use chaos agents had to get operational approval from Angleton or his deputy, Ray Rocha. While Angleton did not see all of the reporting that crossed Ober's desk, he made sure that chaos was exempted from annual financial audits of counterintelligence staff operations. If Angleton did not run chaos, he approved of it in principle and in many of its details. His leading role in domestic counterintelligence was one of the major revelations of the Times story, and Hirsch got it right. When Angleton read the story, he called Hirsch and angrily told him he had blown his cover. He claimed that his wife had known nothing of his CIA work and that she had left him because of the story. That was a lie, and not a very subtle one. Cicely Angleton had known her husband was a hush-hush man before the CIA was even created. She had not left him over Hirsch's story. She had left him three years before because of his absence from their marriage. With a few phone calls to CIA sources, Hirsch discovered the truth about Angleton's marriage and was baffled by the fib. Angleton's lie, of course, expressed a terrible personal truth. He felt utterly abandoned. Late on Saturday night, December 21, 1974, the Times story was read with mounting fascination by David Martin, a young reporter working the overnight shift at the Associated Press office in Washington. As the junior man on staff, Martin had the chore of reading the first edition of the Sunday Times and following up on any especially newsworthy story. With a glance at the triple-decker headline and the photographs of three CIA directors above the fold of the newspaper, Martin knew he had to get to work. He knew something of the CIA world. His father worked as an analyst in the Directorate of Intelligence, but he had never heard Angleton's name before. Martin found Angleton's home phone number in the Arlington phone book. He dialed the number while another reporter listened in. They were sure that no one would answer. He started talking right away, Martin recalled. He sounded like a guy straight out of Le Carre. John Le Carre, the SIS man turned spy novelist, spun tales of Cold War intrigue into best-selling books. His latest, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, featured a world-weary British counterintelligence officer, George Smiley, pursuing a Philby-like mole in the upper ranks of the British intelligence service. He had a slurred way of speaking, Martin said of Angleton. He was not hard to understand, but his thoughts were muddled. 
He gave the impression he'd been drinking too much. We talked to him for an hour, and he complained we had made him burn his spaghetti. As Angleton suddenly became famous as a powerful spy, he was living the reality of an absent-minded bachelor home alone talking on the phone to strangers. The next day, Angleton's home on 33rd Road was besieged by reporters. One of them was Daniel Shore, a CBS News correspondent famous for his blunt questions. He marched up to the front door and rang the bell. A groggy-looking, stoop-shouldered man in pajamas opened the door and pointed at the Washington Post on his doorstep. Shore was standing on it. I certainly didn't expect you, Mr. Shore, to trample on the press, said Angleton. Encouraged by his sense of humor, Shore asked if he could come in. He found himself in a house strewn with books in many languages, mementos of Italy and Israel, and pictures of Sicily and the children. Angleton agreed to talk to Shore, but only off-camera, saying he would be in mortal danger if recognized. Each time Shore asked him about the allegations of improper CIA activities in the United States, Angleton digressed about the Cold War. When Shore tried to bring him back to the question he had asked fifteen minutes earlier, Angleton said, I am not known as a linear thinker, Mr. Shore. You will have to let me approach your question my way. When he was done, Angleton donned his black coat and Homburg and walked out the front door, down the brick steps, and slowly across the lawn into the wilderness of TV cameras. He stopped as if hypnotized. Shore grabbed a microphone lying on the ground, and the cameraman started filming. Why did you resign? Shore asked. I think the time comes to all men when they no longer serve their country, Angleton said. Did you jump or were you pushed? Someone asked. I wasn't pushed out the window, said Angleton. He got into his Mercedes and drove away. That night, Christmas Eve 1974, millions of Americans heard the name James Jesus Angleton for the first time. All three TV networks reported on the Times story, along with the categorical denials of former CIA director Richard Helms. All three played footage of Angleton emerging unsteadily from his front door. Angleton's ordeal was surreal and unimaginable, except that it was actually happening. Newspaper reporters camped out on his lawn, a career of secrecy expiring in the view of millions, his craft of counterintelligence scorned, his mission mocked, his agency stripped bare by reporters he thought were righteous and ignorant. It was, Daniel Shore intoned, a personal tragedy. On Monday morning, the senior CIA staff met as scheduled in a conference room in Langley. Angleton filed in along with two dozen colleagues for the daily rundown of coming activities and events. The meeting opened with the shocking announcement. James Angleton had resigned as chief of the counterintelligence staff. No one said anything, recalled David Phillips, the chief of the Western Hemisphere Division, Angleton lit one of his Virginia Slim's filter cigarettes and began to speak one last time to his colleagues. It was a gloomy forecast, Phillips said. We were uncomfortable. While most of us felt the counterespionage expert to be inordinately inflexible, we also knew he possessed an incubus of deep secrets and a better understanding of the Soviet Union's intelligence operations than many in the West. When the meeting was over, we all left hurriedly, almost as if escaping. That evening, as Phillips was leaving the office, he encountered Angleton in the parking lot. I had never seen a man who looked so infinitely tired and sad, he said. We shook hands, and I got into my car, backed out of the parking space, and drove towards the exit. 
In the rearview mirror, I could see Angleton's tall, gaunt figure growing smaller and smaller. He was still standing beside his car, looking up at the building. Bill Colby moved to dismantle the last vestiges of Angleton's empire and eradicate his influence. He replaced Angleton with the longtime colleague George Calaris. Originally from Montana, Calaris had started his Washington career as a civil servant lawyer in the Labor Department before joining the CIA in 1952. In the course of his tours in Asia, Calaris became one of Colby's trusted regional specialists. During the Vietnam War, his acquisition of the manuals for the Soviet SA-2 missile was credited with saving literally hundreds of pilots and countless aircraft over Vietnam. Colleagues described Calaris as a dependable and fair administrator, someone who grasped complex problems quickly and made shrewd judgments. He had not been part of the counterintelligence staff during the Angleton years, nor had he been involved in any of its internal politicking about the mole hunt. With no small trepidation, Calaris went to Angleton's office in room 43 on the sea corridor. He talked to his staff and flipped through the office files. Calaris called it a desolate situation. Mountains of traffic were coming into the staff, but none of it seemed of much importance, he reported in a memo for the record. The staff had no relation with the Soviet division. The counterintelligence staff was supposed to prevent KGB penetration of CIA operations against the Soviet Union. How could it serve its function without communicating with the people running the operations? It made no sense. The office atmosphere, said Calaris, was conditioned by doublethink and mirrors. Calaris was disturbed to find Angleton's files on the assassination of President Kennedy and his brother Robert. This was material that had never been incorporated into the CIA's central file registry. It had been concealed from the Warren Commission. Calaris was stunned to open one file and find autopsy photographs of the naked remains of Robert F. Kennedy. How did the counterintelligence chief obtain the photos? And why? The implication disturbed Calaris. He thought it was bizarre that Angleton had the photos. He consulted with David Blee, chief of the Near East Division. They agreed that Nosenko's account of the KGB's response to Oswald's defection might explain Angleton's interest in JFK's assassination. They could not think of any reason why it was appropriate for the counterintelligence staff files to hold the RFK autopsy photos. Calaris ordered them destroyed. As for Angleton's JFK files, they told a story that the CIA, as an institution, preferred not to share. Calaris ordered some to be shredded and the rest integrated into the agency's file registry. Thus, the many CIA documents held by Angleton's Special Investigations Group from 1959 to 1963 were preserved, complete with routing slips. When the Oswald file was declassified 30 years later, the story of Angleton's pre-assassination interest in Oswald finally emerged, indicating possible culpability in the wrongful death of President Kennedy. In another dispiriting moment, Calaris found Angleton's files on the mole hunt, otherwise known as the Honatol cases. Here was the evidence, such as it was, that Angleton and Golitsyn had used to blight the careers of those blameless CIA officers, Peter Carlo, Richard Kovitch, Igor Orloff, Vasya Gmirkin, and David Murphy, among many others. Calaris assigned a staff attorney to review the 40 files for any evidence of possible Soviet penetration. The task took a year. Nothing of merit was found in any of them, Calaris said. Angleton's mole hunt was over. At CIA headquarters, it was a moment of reckoning. 
The Times story documented how legitimate foreign counterintelligence operations had evolved into illegal domestic spying. The Times story only hinted at the existence of the lingual operation, and there were the skeletons in Angleton's closet that the Times and the Congress and the President knew nothing about. The Amlash conspiracy to kill Castro, the reckless MK Ultra experiments, the lawless detention of Yuri Nosenko. The multiple congressional investigations into the CIA that followed in 1975 led to what official Washington called the Year of Intelligence. Behind Angleton's personal tragedy was a professional travesty, and the travesty invited disturbing questions about everything from unconstitutional spying to extra-legal detention to the violent deaths of John and Robert Kennedy. In this desolate situation, one ambitious young man in Washington knew exactly what to do. Cheney On the weekend that the New York Times broke the story of CIA domestic spying, President Gerald Ford was headed for one of his favorite places in the world, the ski slopes of Vail, Colorado. The athletic president had a passion for sport that could not be denied. The only work on his schedule were meetings about his upcoming State of the Union address. Ford's chief of staff, Donald Rumsfeld, accompanied him on the trip and protected his privacy during the holiday. As the gatekeeper of the president's time, Rumsfeld brought a gregarious personality and versatile expertise ranging from budgets to engineering. When he read the Times' sensational headlines on the CIA, he sent a message to the White House Situation Room. The president wanted Bill Colby to address the allegations in writing within 48 hours and provide a copy to his deputy, Richard Cheney. Dick, as he preferred to be called, was 33 years old, a native of Wyoming who had come east to Washington to intern for a Republican congressman and never left. An enthusiastic supporter of the U.S. war effort in Vietnam, Cheney used graduate school deferments to avoid getting drafted himself. Rumsfeld was the latest in a series of bosses who were impressed by Cheney's incisive memoranda and prodigious work ethic. Cheney, the junior man in the relationship, did not have Rumsfeld's bluff charm, but he had the more precise mind. Cheney became President Ford's point man on the Angleton story. The revelations in the Times article confounded Ford's advisors. An agitated Henry Kissinger called television journalist Ted Koppel to warn him off the story. Kissinger insisted the CIA had merely assessed the degree to which foreign countries were infiltrating foreign student movements, which wasn't close to true. I am so sick of these things, Kissinger said. They have been in the newspapers thousands of times. In fact, Hirsch's reporting was read with appalled interest on Capitol Hill, in newsrooms, and in living rooms precisely because it documented allegations of surveillance and infiltration that the government had long denied. In this crucible, Dick Cheney grasped that the issue was neither simply one man nor the spying on Americans. At stake was the power of the president to use the CIA as an instrument of national policy as he saw fit. Cheney did not think small. He pulled his thoughts together in a memo that historian John Prados calls one of the most significant and completely ignored artifacts of the year of intelligence. Cheney's paper disclosed that his acute political instincts were already well-developed. He suggested Ford take the lead in the investigation and accept the responsibility for making certain the CIA is adhering to its charter. He proposed public release of all or part of Colby's report. 
He recommended creating a special group or commission to investigate the Times' charges. This would demonstrate leadership, Cheney wrote, and convince the nation that government does indeed have integrity. A blue-ribbon commission offers the best prospect for heading off congressional efforts to further encroach on the executive branch, Cheney added, an argument that would become second nature as he went on to serve as a congressman, secretary of defense, and vice president. Ford accepted Cheney's idea of a commission and named Vice President Nelson Rockefeller to head it. Cheney's strategy was not totally successful. The creation of the Rockefeller Commission did not head off separate investigations by the Senate and the House of Representatives, but Cheney did prove an able advocate of unbridled presidential power. Jim Angleton's career was ending. Dick Cheney's was just beginning. Angleton's friends and family rallied to his side. Sicily came back from Tucson. Dick Helms, who had indulged Angleton for years, returned from Iran to deal with the Fuhrer. He thought Angleton's dismissal was completely unjust. Tom Karamasinis, who had ordered Angleton to set up Operation Chaos, told Cord Meyer he thought Hirsch's piece was a contemptible shot in the dark with almost no facts to back up his wild allegations. From Israel, his friend Ephraim Halevi wrote a Dear Jim letter. The wisest of men once said that there is a time for everything. This is not the time for me to write and dwell on all that I feel at this hour, or for that matter, ever since your move of a few days ago. In so saying, I deliberately refrain from using administrative terms like retirement, for you never functioned as one of the others. Your sphere of action was never defined by titles and name. What you did for so many years was not at the behest of those fleeting transitory luminaries, the big ones or the more minor ones, and you will not cease to be what you are or do what you believe in because one of them has signed a piece of paper. He is not in good shape, his old friend Reed Whitmore said after visiting Angleton. He is depressed. He doesn't especially want to see people. His friends are not able to help him much and can't seem to persuade him to go to Arizona or Florida for a bit. As the Times' revelations about the extent and duration of domestic spying sank in, a sense of anger and betrayal spread in Congress. The now-departed Nixon and his henchmen had violated the law, but they had never compiled files on 10,000 Americans. They had not opened mail or infiltrated peaceful political groups in the United States, the representatives just elected in November 1974 were especially indignant. Ten new senators took their seats in January 1975, along with 75 new congressmen and congresswomen. Coming to Washington after the unprecedented debacle of a presidential resignation, the Watergate babies, as they were known, felt determined to re-establish Congress as an equal branch of government. The new Congress was hardly satisfied by the creation of the Rockefeller Commission, or impressed by the independence of the totems whom Ford had named to investigate the CIA. Ronald Reagan, governor of California, was an instinctive defender of the CIA and the military. Lane Kirkland was chief of the AFL-CIO, which had received secret CIA funding via J. Lovestone. Lyman Lemnitzer, the retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was still notorious for the militarism that inspired the coup d'etat scenario of Seven Days in May. And the commissioner's executive director, David Bellin, had also held a position with the increasingly suspect Warren Commission. One poll found that half of all respondents said the Rockefeller Commission would be too influenced by the White House. 
Four in ten believed the commission would turn into another cover-up. In late January 1975, Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield of Montana put together a resolution creating a select committee to investigate the CIA, which passed by a vote of 82 to 4. The Senate committee would be co-chaired by Frank Church, a liberal Democrat from Idaho, and Howard Baker of Senate Watergate Committee fame. Angleton thought the orgy of self-criticism convulsing the Congress and the press alike was something more primitive than witch-burning or the whiplash of Puritan conscience. The indignation was positively evangelical, he said. He took to quoting a German diplomat who said of scandalized America circa 1975, You don't have a country over there. You have a huge church. What the United States of America experienced in 1975 and 1976 was a constitutional crisis. The struggle was precipitated by the lawless presidency and unprecedented resignation of Richard Nixon. It was joined by the exposure and firing of James Angleton. The crisis lasted for close to two years until President Jimmy Carter was elected and the Justice Department decided not to prosecute Angleton. One witness to this epic conflict was a Capitol Hill veteran named Bill Miller. As Senator Church began to organize the Senate investigation, he called on Miller to serve as the committee's chief of staff. Miller, a former Foreign Service officer, had helped the Nixon administration secure Senate approval of the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty in 1972. As Miller hired the staff to investigate, he negotiated with his bosses, Church and Baker, in the Senate, and their adversaries, Rumsfeld and Cheney, in the White House, along with Colby and others at the CIA. Miller found himself navigating between two Washington factions, which he dubbed the King's Party and the Constitutionalists. These were not actual organized entities, and the participants themselves did not use Miller's terminology, but the labels captured the two political tendencies vying for power in the vacuum of legitimacy left by Nixon's resignation. The King's Party, epitomized by Ford and Cheney, had an expansive view of presidential power, to them, the chief executive embodied the sovereignty of the American people. In their view, any limitation on the powers of the chief executive, and by extension the CIA, was almost, by definition, harmful to the American people. The president, they asserted, could and should act in defense of national security as he saw fit. But the King's Party was on the defensive in the spring of 1975, its assertive credo had been discredited by the divisive and unsuccessful war in Vietnam and by Nixon's crime spree, as abetted by the CIA. The Constitutionalists, based in the resurgent Congress, demanded a new legal framework to restrain executive power and the CIA. They voiced the widespread belief that no president was above the law. The revelations of domestic spying, they believed, strengthened the case for constitutional principles to protect the liberties of Americans— Miller noticed one of the most interesting aspects of this struggle. The CIA itself was split. Even in retirement, former director Dick Helms was an influential voice in the King's Party, while the current director, Bill Colby, had effectively joined the Constitutionalists. Along the way, Miller got to know Angleton. He concluded that his tenure as counterintelligence chief had destroyed him psychologically. The senators looked at Angleton as an example of an extraordinarily intelligent man and interesting phenomenon, Miller said in an oral history of the church committee. He embodied the temptation of falling prey to a fascination with the workings of the dark side. And the dark side was fast coming to light.
Dear Cord, Angleton wrote to his friend Cord Meyer on January 26, 1975. Meyer was now serving as London station chief and anxious about Angleton's condition since his forced retirement. Sorry not to have written sooner, Angleton said, but how can one describe a nightmare? With a single word, assassination. Warning Angleton's waking nightmare grew more frightening on February 28, 1975. Daniel Shore delivered a revelation on the CBS Evening News more sensational than anything Seymour Hersh had reported. The CIA faced investigation for the assassination of foreign leaders. President Ford reportedly warns associates that if current investigations go too far, Several assassinations of foreign officials that had CIA involvement could be uncovered, Shore said. The retired orchid grower of 33rd Road knew more than a little about the subject of assassination. The source for Shore's story was, in a roundabout way, Dick Helms. In the aftermath of Angleton's firing, Helms returned to Washington. The sleek ambassador was feeling betrayed by his choirboy colleague Bill Colby, to demonstrate that the agency did not hold itself above the law, Colby had taken it upon himself without consultation to share the family jewels documents with the Justice Department to see if there was any criminal behavior. Some of those documents showed that Helms had lied to a congressional committee when he denied that the CIA had sought to overthrow the government of Chile in 1970 by means of an assassination. Some at the Justice Department thought Helms should be indicted for perjury, Helms had indeed stonewalled the Senate in service of his legal obligation to protect CIA sources and methods, he said. The story was not pretty. In September 1970, Nixon and Kissinger had ordered Helms to do something, anything, to block the duly elected leftist president Salvatore Allende from taking office in Chile. Helms put his protege David Phillips in charge. The agency's allies in Santiago, a clique of ultra-rightist officers, took it upon themselves to kidnap the country's top general, René Schneider, who said the military would not interfere with Allende's lawful election. A gang ambushed Schneider's car in morning traffic, and the general suffered fatal wounds in the shootout. Allende assumed office without military intervention. The CIA paid off its thugs and retired from the scene with barely plausible denials of any involvement. Not surprisingly, Helms did not care to explain that homicidal fiasco to the Congress or to the Justice Department, much less to the television cameras. In a meeting in early January 1975, Helms had warned Secretary of State Kissinger that he would not take the blame for accusations related to assassination operations. If allegations have been made to justice, a lot of dead cats will come out, Helms said referring to the 19th-century pastime in American politics of hurling feline corpses during appearances of rival candidates. I intend to defend myself, he warned Kissinger. I know enough to say that if the dead cats come out, I will participate. He would sling a few himself. President Ford wanted to avoid the whole subject. During a meeting with editors of the New York Times later that month, Ford expressed concern that the impending congressional investigations might delve into matters the U.S. government simply could not discuss. Like what? a Times editor asked. Like assassination, Ford blurted out before hastily taking his answer off the record. The Times editors decided they could not take advantage of Ford's blunder and print what he had said. 
but Dan Shore heard the story, confirmed it with his own sources, and went on the air. Shore's scoop generated another round of damaging headlines in the Washington Post. CIA is reported to fear link to three assassination plots. CIA officials, the story reported, feared exposure of plots to kill Castro in Cuba, strongman Rafael Trujillo in the Dominican Republic, and the nationalist Patrice Lumumba in Congo. The resulting disbelief and dismay, America was going around killing the leaders of other countries, stoked more demands for investigation. The revelation strengthened Frank Church, Bill Colby, and the constitutionalists who favored more accountability for the agency. It undermined Dick Helms, Dick Cheney, and the stalwarts of the King's Party who defended the most expansive reading of presidential powers. The Rockefeller Commission, set up to investigate allegations of domestic spying, had no choice but to add CIA assassination plots to its agenda. Then came another unsettling disclosure. Neither Helms nor Alan Dulles had told the Warren Commission about the plots to kill Castro. The story boosted the credibility of the much-maligned JFK conspiracy theorists who had long argued, accurately it turned out, that the government was hiding relevant information about Kennedy's murder. On March 6, 1975, Geraldo Rivera, a host of ABC's late-night television show Good Night America, invited JFK researchers Robert Groden and Dick Gregory on the air to screen Abraham Zapruder's home movie of the assassination, the first time JFK's death had ever been shown on broadcast television. The footage was grainy. Groden and Gregory had only a third- or fourth-generation copy of the film— but it showed millions of Americans for the first time what had actually happened in Dallas on November 22nd. The fatal shot had blasted Kennedy's body and head backward and to the left, a grisly reality that the Warren Commission had elided by saying the president fell to the left. Defenders of the Warren Commission were hard-pressed to explain how a bullet fired from behind JFK and traveling a thousand miles an hour could have driven the victim's head and body toward the source of the gunfire. The intrepid reporting of Shore and Rivera had a combustible effect on public opinion, stirring disbelief and demands for a new JFK investigation. The credibility of the Rockefeller Commission, already stacked with Washington insiders, was in doubt. Executive Director David Bellin hastened to criticize the CIA's failure to disclose the Castro plots to the Warren Commission. He was joined by David Slauson, a law professor at the University of Southern California who had also served on the commission's staff. Slauson rejected criticism of the Warren Commission's findings and disdained the circus atmosphere around public discussion of the issue, but when a New York Times reporter showed him an FBI document that had just been unearthed in the National Archives, Slauson also felt obliged to speak out. The memo, written by J. Edgar Hoover and sent to the CIA's Office of Security in June 1960, concerned Oswald, who was living in the Soviet Union at the time. The memo asked whether an imposter might be using Oswald's birth certificate. The issue had apparently first been raised with FBI agents in Dallas by Oswald's conspiracy-minded mother, Marguerite. As Slauson read through the 15-year-old memo, he decided that there was almost certainly nothing to it. Still, he was angry, because he was certain that he had never seen the memo. So he agreed to go on the record with the Times, both to attack the CIA and to join the growing calls for a new investigation of Kennedy's assassination, 
if only to determine why this document and so much other information had been withheld. I don't know where the imposter notion would have led us, perhaps nowhere, like a lot of other leads, Slauson told the Times, but the point is, we didn't know about it, and why not? There was much more that Slauson didn't know. He didn't know that Angleton's staff had controlled access to Oswald's file from 1959 to 1963, or that his aides had drafted cables on Oswald's visit to Mexico in October 1963, or that Angleton had participated in planning the assassination of Castro. Slauson didn't know it, but when he criticized the CIA for stonewalling the Warren Commission, he was criticizing Angleton personally. A few days later, Slauson received an unexpected phone call at his home in Pasadena, California. This is James Angleton, the caller said. The voice was plummy and friendly to Slauson's ears, the name vaguely familiar. Angleton said he wanted to talk about the Times article explaining his background. He really piled it on how important and aristocratic he was, Slauson recalled. Then, Slauson says, the conversation took a menacing turn. Was it true, Angleton wanted to know, that Slauson was calling for a new investigation of elements of the Kennedy assassination? Angleton's tone, more than the literal meaning of his words, seemed threatening to Slauson. Angleton suggested that the CIA needed Slauson's help, his continuing help, as a partner. A partner in what? Slauson wondered. We want you to know how we appreciate the work you have done with us, Angleton said. Slauson reminded himself that he had never worked for the CIA. He had investigated the CIA, or so he thought. We hope you'll remain a friend, Angleton said. We hope you'll remain a partner with us. He spoke slowly, pausing to allow Slauson to take in what he was saying. The message was, We know everything you're doing, Slauson recalled, thinking as he put the phone down. We'll find it out. Just remember that. The CIA is watching you. Slauson and his wife were both alarmed by the call. It was a warning, Slauson decided. Keep your mouth shut. It was the same threat Wynne Scott had received. Angleton was still obstructing justice in the case of the murdered president. He was still deflecting questions, not answering them. When Seymour Hirsch pressed Angleton about who was responsible for the assassination of JFK, he replied cryptically, A mansion has many rooms. I'm not privy to who struck John. Whatever did Angleton mean by that? I would be absolutely misleading you if I thought I had any effing idea, Hirsch told author David Talbot. But my instinct about it is he basically was laying off, blame for the assassination, on somebody else inside the CIA. The investigative reporter sensed a man with something to hide. The whole purpose of the conversation was to convince me to go after somebody else on JFK and not him. The rituals of Washington politics were giving way to fear and loathing, and for good reason. The American ascendancy that had elevated Angleton and Helms and the CIA to unlimited power was over. The military-industrial colossus that had defeated Nazi Germany and vanquished the Japanese was spent. The United States was in the final throes of losing the war in distant Vietnam to a disciplined peasant army that barely had an air force. Henry Kissinger's peace treaty of 1973 was just a scrap of paper as the North Vietnamese launched a wide-ranging offensive in March 1975. In almost every battle, the South Vietnamese army collapsed, 
leaving the pro-American government in control of Saigon and little more. In early April 1975, Bill Colby ordered the Saigon station to start destroying its files and evacuating its personnel. The CIA men faced a new reality. Things might turn out very badly, not just for the country, but for them personally. The Senate investigation had already drawn blood. The Church Commission gained access to the family jewels documents and found mention of the case of Frank Olson, the U.S. Army scientist who had died after being dosed with LSD. Nobody in Langley wanted to talk about a suspicious death in 1953 that was cleaned up by none other than James McCord, the CIA man now famous as a Watergate burglar. The idea that Frank Olson had killed himself by hurling his body through a closed window could not withstand much scrutiny, so the agency quickly offered the Olson family generous financial compensation and a meeting with President Ford, which was coordinated by Dick Cheney. The CIA and the White House adopted the cover story found in the files, that Olson was the unwitting victim of an LSD experiment and had committed suicide. Nobody was more alarmed about these developments than cool, collected Dick Helms. He had risen through the ranks of the CIA on the strength of his discipline and loyalty. He had prevailed over talented and ambitious men in the 